Got any plans for early November? You should. And Ray Murphy, the co-general manager and speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com, has a good idea for you, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 1st. Happy Canada Day. It's show number 31 of the 2016 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com, about the spectacular rise of his NFBC team, about buying high and selling low, about first pitch Arizona, his studs and duds, and more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at DL visits for Clayton Kershaw and Steven Strasburg, Fernando Rodney taking his talents to South Beach, and more. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at A.J. Reed getting the call in Houston, Lorenzo Kane hitting the DL in Kansas City, and Alex Colomay's injury creating closer woes in Tampa. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Cubs second base prospect Ian Happ. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at the minor league effects of John Jay's injury, as well as Alex Bregman's call-up odds in Houston. In our frequent flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at Seattle catcher Mike Zunino and Minnesota starting pitcher Jose Barrios. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst Greg Fishwick looks at four matchups, including two on Sunday. Cleveland ace right-hander Corey Kluber at Toronto to face righty J.A. Happ, and a National League game pitting breakout star right-hander Jonathan Gray of Colorado at Dodger Stadium against rookie star righty Julio Arias. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about a Thor elbow and the spurs of the moment. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's Canada Day. Get some ribs on the barbie, put some moose head ale on ice, and we gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of our Friday edition, Our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, and happy Canada Day. Thank you, Patrick. Happy Canada Day to you. Thanks. I appreciate that very much. A uh, lot of news in the National League this week, starting with the big headline of the week. Clayton Kershaw goes on the 15-day DL because of back pain, probably out at least till the All-Star break, uh, maybe beyond. Yeah, it's hard to tell you know exactly what, what how long this will be. It's a, apparently a herniated disc, and... Uh, the doctor, the doctors are saying right now he does not need surgery, but you know, we know those things can be, can be very, very serious. So, uh, right now that things are sort of up in the air trying to figure out, I guess, how long Kershaw really will be out, but it's a certainly a big blow to the Dodgers. I noticed that uh, the Dodgers said in in news releases that they hoped he'd be back sometime in late July, but uh, given what we know about back injuries, and this is not the first back problem he's had, he missed some starts in 2014 with a bad uh, muscle muscle problem in his in his back. Geez, uh, end of July seems uh, terribly optimistic. I don't know if I'd place a lot of money on that bet. Yeah, it really does seem very optimistic, and so I, I you know I would not be 
if I were a Kershaw owner, I'd be putting him on my reserve if I had one and try to figure out a way to shore things up in the meantime. And how do you shore things up after you've lost Clayton Kershaw? That's the question. This is really something. I mean, I was looking at his... his, Stat line over the years, uh, 31, 32, 33 starts uh, after his first call-up. Then uh, 33, 33, 33. Then he missed that time in 2014 with that back injury. 33 again last year. So I know we always expect pitchers are going to get injured sooner or later, but doesn't this come as a surprise all the same? Yeah, it does. I mean, you you do expect pitchers to get injured sooner or later, but not Clayton Kershaw. He's just been, as you said, absolutely indestructible. So uh, it's it certainly is a blow to the Dodgers. It's something that I'm sure they were not expecting, uh, and it's going to be a problem as they uh, as they head into the second half. And it's funny you said the fantasy owners are going to have to figure out how to manage. Of course, the Dodgers, with all the trouble they've had in the rotation, now get this added to their problems. But they made a step. They acquired Bud Norris from the uh, Atlanta Braves. They got Bud Norris from the Atlanta Braves, and you know your first reaction looking at Bud Norris, baby, huh? <laughs> He's no Clayton Kershaw, and he certainly isn't. But the thing to look at with Bud Norris, it's one of those interesting things that sometimes you do as a fantasy general manager. The guy has been hot. Over the last month, a 2.08 ERA, a 127 BPV in the last 31 days, that's not anything to sneeze at. And if you look at the PQS, in his last in his last five starts, or his last four starts even, throw out a PQS 2 against the Dodgers on June the 4th, we've got 5-4-3-5. So, He's in a groove. He's pitching well. He's not going to be Clayton Kershaw, but Bud Norris may be okay for a short time. I saw those uh, last five starts, and I was uh, interested that he's raised his uh, dominance rate to 8.6 strikeouts per nine, and he's got a 58% ground ball rate. And you know me, uh, Nick, add those ground balls to those strikeouts. That's a pitcher that really intrigues me. But the question is, how come Bud Norris is all of a sudden doing so well? Yeah, you know, you, you have to wonder. I mean, this is a guy who's 31 years old. He's been around a while, and I did a pitching coach get hold of him and, and show him exactly what to do? Did he just hit, you know, the time when I've been playing golf, and I hit, hit an absolute groove, and I don't know what I'm doing, but the ball goes exactly where I want it to go for long distances. So it may be the sort of thing where he's in a groove and doesn't really understand why he's in it, and of course that's dangerous because you can fall out of it very easily. The BaseballHQ.com Playing Time Today coverage uh, mentioned that Norris has uh, been using a cut fastball, which is a new pitch in his arsenal, and it's really uh, getting the job done. Now the question, of course, is that Los Angeles is betting on is whether or not that's sustainable. And, of course, they have uh, Julio Urias, the Uber prospect in Los Angeles, and what do you suppose this means for him? Because they have been saying that he's going to be on an innings pitch limit or a pitch count limit of some kind. Might they feel tempted or pressured to uh, ignore that because they need the innings in what could be a playoff race with San Francisco? Well, you, you, know, you have to wonder. I mean, uh, that, that, that could be, could that be a factor in getting Urias more, more playing time? I mean, as he's, as he's pitched, he seems to slowly be getting a little bit better uh, and getting more accustomed to the major league. So certainly he's been pitching okay. Uh, last uh, last five starts, four PQS threes and a PQS four, so beginning to get kind of consistent, um, and so they might be tempted to to give him a few more innings than they had originally intended, uh, if they stay in the race and if the race gets hot. But it'll sure be interesting to see what they what they finally decide to do. 
Dodgers are six games back of the Giants as we speak in the National League West, and they are the the leader in the National League wildcard race, a game and a half up on the Mets. And what I was thinking, I've been reading a lot lately, Nick, that uh, the Dodgers might consider using Urias in some kind of bullpen role so that they can keep him in the lineup and get some useful uh, leverage innings out of him while not making him a starter. And boy, if they did that, that would really have a downward impact on his uh, fantasy value. Yeah, sure. But I mean, if he's doing, uh, if he's doing uh, an inning here and there or two innings here and there, uh, that would certainly negatively impact the fantasy value. Although it might save his arm for uh, a time when he gets a bit older and can uh, pitch a full season of the majors. Which uh, has different ramifications depending on whether you're playing for this year in a single league, a single year type format, or whether you have him in a uh, dynasty or keeper league. A lot of issues here. Another star pitcher having back problems, Nick Washington starter Steven Strasburg was sent to the DL with an upper back injury that was traced to a weight room incident. Yeah, I, guess, I think so. And I, this is supposed to be a very short term situation. Uh, originally they thought Strasburg might be back early next week. That doesn't sound as though that's going to happen. It looks like he'll miss his next start. Uh, and so, uh, hopefully this will not become an extended problem for, um, uh, for them. But, uh, at this point, uh, he is on the DL and, uh, we're not sure exactly how soon it'll come back. Certainly not coming back as quickly as they hoped he would. He was lifting weights, uh, as I understand the story, and he popped two ribs out of place. My wife has had that happen to her, and it's very, very painful. It's relatively easily fixed in the moment. You just go to a chiropractor or even probably a physiotherapist, and they just kind of pop those ribs back into place. But it still hurts, and of course, my wife's not a major league pitcher, so that that's a, that's a, a a different kettle of fish. But I'm just saying that the indications are that this could be a little more troublesome than it first appears. Say, say, pop the ribs back, and it sounds like, well, there you go. But it's not that they did have an MRI. He's not damaged beyond that. They uh, started Tanner Ark, I think, in uh, Strasburg's place on Sunday. They moved Joe Ross up a day. They and. Of course, the most interesting news, they promoted top prospect Lucas Giolito. Yeah, Lucas Giolito came up and made a, made, a, made a start, and unfortunately it was a range-shortened start, so we really didn't see, to see what he could do as he went deep into a game. But uh, that first start, four innings pitched, no earned runs allowed, but only one strikeout and two walks. So at this point, I guess we, we, uh, our, our, our uh, secondary metrics are not very good. That's a minus 48 BPV, which certainly is not what we were expecting out of Lucas Giolito, but in a range-shortened start, you never know, but I think for me the key, the key statistic out of that uh, that start was I, I think I saw that he got two swinging strikes in those four innings, and that's not real good. Uh, certainly, that would have to change if he were to uh, to stay in and make more starts. And it looks as though he might get another start or two, depending upon how seriously Strasburg is uh, is injured and how long he's out. He's a terrific prospect. He's a, under BaseballHQ.com's uh, prospect rating system, he's a 10C. A 10 is a Hall of Famer, and a C means he has, I think, a 60% chance of reaching that ceiling. So even if he's not quite to that level, he stands to be a very, very solid starter. The question is, can he do it now? I think he's, he's still only 21 years old. He's a big horse. He's 6'6", 250. But at 21 years old, uh, the major leagues is a daunting proposition. It really is. I mean, you know, you've got to you've got to remember that at 21 years old, there's a, a huge hill to climb here, and and uh, he's probably undoubtedly not used to the way batters adjust in the major leagues and and that sort of thing. So, uh, it's a difficult proposition. I wouldn't expect great things out of him this year. I think that first that first start when he only got two swinging strikes is an indication that major leaguers are not going to to bite all the time on his pitches, and so. 
uh, he's going to have to figure out a way to get them to to uh, to come after them, uh, even if he is throwing 94 miles an hour. You know, so um, he's got he's got a ways to go, and I, and I like I would think that Washington would not want to overuse him this particular season. Well, again, it'll depend on how they're doing in the race. They're leading the National League East. It's going to be tough with the Mets chasing them, although the Mets are certainly not uh, a powerhouse. Uh, the the interesting thing I noticed about Giolito, in, in the minors, his dominance rate is approaching double digits, which is a very strong indicator, but he's walking a lot of guys. And I, I wonder if maybe his first start in the big leagues, he's trying really hard and having trouble finding the plate. And you're not going to get swinging strikes if you're nowhere near the dish and and, and issuing out the walks. So I, th- I think Giolito's a guy I'd like to add, but I'd be kind of happy if I added him and then they sent him back down for more seasoning. Right, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's clear, I think, at this point that he has a few things to learn before he's ready to be that 10C pitcher that we're looking at. But, you know, that 10C rating uh, is very, very rare. Uh, and this is a this is a very rare prospect uh, with a very an incredibly high ceiling. So uh, it's one of those things that he needs to be managed very carefully at this stage in his career. In many leagues, of course, he will already be on somebody's roster somewhere on his reserve. A lot of leagues have farm teams and those kind of things, so that's not going to be uh, a possibility. But there are those kind of leagues that don't allow you to pick up a guy until he's in the major leagues, until he actually has some major league at-bats or innings pitched. And if that's the case, this could be a real great opportunity for keeper league owners to latch onto a tremendous prospect. Yeah, very definitely. It's a, it's a time that uh, it's a sub, if you're in a keeper league, grab him immediately if he's out there. Uh, a, a great, great prospect. Down in Miami, I guess they have some aspirations this year. They are currently third in the uh, National League East, six and a half games behind Washington. They seem to think maybe they're uh, in a position to make a run for the wild card. They're not that far out, a half game behind the Mets. And they've taken a step to shore up their bullpen by acquiring Fernando Rodney, taking his talents to South Beach from San Diego. And Fernando Rodney has had a good year. He's been uh, he's pitched extremely well in San Diego and looks as though at this point he'll he'll drop into a setup role, which is something they've really needed some help with. So they will have uh, at the uh, projection is that Rodney would be in the eighth inning and Ramos in the ninth and could give them a real a real one two punch at the uh, back end of ball games. Tristan Cockcroft of ESPN tweeted that since the start of 2014, Ramos has 39 games where he got four outs or more, while Rodney's only had seven of those type of games. And he uh, speculated that it could mean that the Marlins want to use Ramos as the setup guy because he has more experience in that multi-inning role, which would put Rodney in the closer role, which would be tremendous for his owners. And meanwhile, the loser in all of this seems to be David Phelps. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that, that definitely Phelps is the loser in all of this, no matter how the closer situation works out. Uh, and certainly, I think we'll have to wait and see how they decide to do that. But, you know, the other the other um, flip side of that, Ramos getting four outs, is there are times where clearly when they've had to use him when they, perhaps they didn't want to bring him in quite so early. And so uh, it, it certainly gives them a great punch at the back of the bullpen. We'll have to wait and see who the real closer is and how they decide to use them. But either one of those guys we know can close ball games. If I were in a mixed or National League-only league, I think I'd uh, maybe be tempted to approach the Rodney owner to see if he was a little panicky and willing to give up on him because there seems to be some potential that Rodney could end up with the role down there. Uh, I think that would be interesting. Meanwhile, the Padres get Chris Paddock, a uh, surprising sort of prospect. Uh, Do you know anything about him? I really don't know anything about him. Do, Do you have information on him? Well, I know that he was 
having a really good year at Class A, and I'm, how many pitchers do we know in the history of baseball who had great years at Class A who didn't amount to anything? But listen to these stats. Uh, 28 and a third innings so far, nine hits allowed, an 0.95 ERA, and 48 strikeouts against two walks. That's a command ratio of 24. And I know it's only Class A, but that's pretty good. That's really, really good. And so the kind of thing that, you know, if you're if you're not in it for this year, that's the kind of prospect you certainly want to take a chance on if you're San Diego. Meanwhile, what few save opportunities are left in San Diego seem destined for left-hander Ryan Buchter. Yeah, Ryan Buchter looks like he'll be the guy now in San Diego. And I, you know, what do we know about Ryan Buchter? Ryan Buchter's having a very good year. 2.91 ERA, 1.18 whip, 108 BPV. So there's some good peripherals to go along with that. A 13.2 dom rate, 54 or 20, but only a 20% ground ball rate. So this is the guy who gets a lot of balls in the air, and that, of course, can eventually mean trouble. The other thing about Buchter that is that is difficult is he has some has some uh, control issues. Uh, at this point, 4.8 control, so he's putting some guys on base, uh, and not always a good thing for a closer to do. With that dom rate, maybe he can shut things down even after he issues a walk or two. But I think he'll be a shaky closer, uh, but may pack up, pick up some saves if the opportunities exist for him in San Diego. Holding right-handed hitters to a 216 batting average in a relatively small sample is a plus on his side as well, but that is a lot of walks, and it seems like it could be a reason that we should be looking at Brandon Maurer again. Maybe so. I mean, you know, they, this is a this is a left-hander who will be trying this thing in a, in a situation where he doesn't have a whole lot of, uh, of closing experience. He's done uh, in uh, nine years in the minors, Buchter has 36 saves, so has not been a, a shutdown closer in the minors at all. And so, uh, yeah, maybe we should look at Maurer again. He started the month pretty poorly, but he's finishing with a flourish, posting seven consecutive scoreless innings and a 274 expected ERA. So that's not bad. As 17 strikeouts, two walks uh, through 14 innings for the month. Uh, yeah, you know, again, depending on your league's roster rules, Brandon Moore could be somebody to, you know, stash away and see what happens. Uh, we like talking about Stephen Rick Nickrand's starting pitcher buyer's guide column here, Nick. Uh, and this week he's looking at splits. Uh, he's been doing that for the last couple of weeks. This time it's base performance value by the time through the lineup. This is an interesting thing because uh, we all have that horrible experience of our pitcher mowing him down the first time through the order, you know, giving up a hit or a walk here or there and the second time through the order, and then having the roof fall in and the third time through. Uh, a couple of interesting names here. Let's start in Miami again with left-hander Adam Conley. Yeah, Adam Conley is one of those guys that really is very intriguing because he had, he's had a few very good games, uh, and then you see him totally collapse all of a sudden. and. Uh, Steven's analysis is, uh, is, I think, gives us a reason for looking at that. At this point, uh, a 3.90 ERA and 16 starts, that's not bad at all. That's something that looks, that looks, uh, looks really, really good if you're looking for a pitcher. On the other hand, uh, he does have some trouble making it through the lineup. First time through the lineup, 136 BPV, 9.7 Don, 2.2 control, 44% ground ball rate. That looks great. By the time he gets to the third time through the lineup, he's down to a minus 26 BPV, getting increasingly wild. And depending upon uh, how much trouble he has with those guys coming around to score, uh, can get bumped out of a ball game very, very fast. If you look at, say, the last four starts that he's done, uh, allowed five earned runs on June the 12th against Arizona, then only one against Colorado, none against Atlanta, and then five earned runs again at Detroit. So uh, he does have some problems that... Uh, uh, that, that can lead to blow-ups at this point, and it's probably time to the lineup has a lot to do with that. 
I can tell you from bitter experience, he's a very uh, troubling or um, bothersome play in daily fantasy as well. I started him once against the Braves, and I was kind of tracking the game, and it's exactly that. Uh, he wrote, through the first time through, he was mowing them down, and then at the by the end of the game, he had given up uh, four or five earned runs. He only went six innings because of the trouble that he was having when they got to that third time through. It's a real problem. Yeah, and you know, and Stephen suggested, and perhaps it's really true, is that there may be a stamina issue. Maybe this guy is just not doesn't have the stamina to go six or seven innings. And if we look back over the course of this season, uh, the last time he made it into the seventh inning was, or made it through the seventh inning was April the 29th. So uh, this is a, this is a guy who's going to be in the game for five or six innings. Uh, I'm sorry, I take that back. He did get eight innings uh, pitched against Atlanta on the 22nd, but. He's not likely to, to uh, throw a complete game for you uh, or make it all the way through the uh, uh, even very deep, deep into the games. And that's, of course, going to affect his win total. And his uh, other counting stats totals. Yeah, this is a problem that uh, maybe as he gets a little bigger and stronger, he'll, uh, he'll sort it out. But, of course, it's hot down there in Miami. Boy, oh, boy, as the season gets longer, you can expect more stamina issues if those are the problems. Stephen uh, Nickrand also talked about Washington right-handed starter Joe Ross. Yeah, Joe Ross has a very similar kind of situation, a little bit younger than, uh, uh, than Conley. But, uh, and, and at this point, I think ultimately probably perhaps a, a little better pitcher. Uh, right now, a 3.30 ERA, a uh, 1.22 whip. Been pitching very well, but... Similar kinds of problems. Uh, first time through the lineup, 1.64 ERA, 0.85 whip, 149 BPV. But third time through, 5.16 ERA, 1.54 whip, minus 8 BPV. So at 23 years old, certainly room for some improvement and perhaps some, some growth in stamina and that sort of thing. But uh, a lot of good potential with Joe Ross. Uh, he's probably not going to explode this season as long as he's having that much trouble the third time through the lineup. So much to think about when you're looking at pitchers, injuries, times through the lineup. It's so hard to manage it, but that's what makes the game fun. Nick, thanks very much for taking the time to help us out, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. You're welcome, Patrick. Always good to be here, and enjoy talking about baseball. And have a great 4th of July weekend. Thank you, and have a great uh, a great Canada Day weekend. Thanks. We're uh, having some spare ribs on the barbecue tonight, so it'll be great. Uh, Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, how you doing? Happy Canada Day. <laughs> hey, CD, how you doing? Happy Canada Day to you and happy 4th. Yeah, it's going to be a nice weekend. We start off with uh, our nation's birthday. We finish the weekend with yours. Lots of baseball in between and lots of baseball to talk about. And I'd like to start in Houston. The uh, Astros have finally called up their top hitting prospect, A.J. Reed, to play some first base. He was uh, trying to fill in a black hole in that position, I guess you could call it. But he's really struggled. Oh, for his first 15, he's got a couple of walks, but he struck out eight times. You've been watching this for a while now because you look after the American League West for playing time tomorrow, and you wrote about Reed. What are you seeing going on here? First, getting back to that black hole at the Houston first base spot, that, it, that was something that really needed addressing. Tyler White had been awful after his hot first two weeks in April. He was finally demoted. Uh, utility Marlon Gonzalez had, had picked things up in June after a terrible start. 
but he's not an everyday first baseman and he's really needed to play all over the diamond as Houston kind of rediscovered this past month when uh, Carlos Correa was forced to the sideline with a sprained ankle for I think three four games now as I noted in my playing time today space at the time of the call-up Reed had been hitting well over his previous 10 games he'd been 16 for 43 with three homers but he didn't have any walks and he struck out 11 times and that latter stat to me is the tip-off to his uh, to his biggest issue um, which is his contact I like the move made here by Houston I think Reed deserves a chance I'm not convinced that he's going to be immediately successful at the major league level though uh, to, to start off and uh, and he needs to step it up pretty quickly. Yeah, I agree. I've been watching this uh, story with a little bit of interest. I tried to tune in and watch some of his games, and he just seems a little overmatched right now is, the, is how I'd put it. And uh, Houston's got some ambitions playoff-wise and uh, World Series-wise, and they can't afford to dilly-dally around. I think you're right when you say A.J. Reed had better pick it up, but quick. Reed has really good power. Um, I'm not sure that it's, say, like 70-grade power, say like a Chris Carter or an Adam Duvall or at least it's not showing it didn't show up that way in AAA and it certainly hasn't shown up in the small sample in Houston yet in other words he can't afford to hit 230 and 240 and and stay in the lineup and he and he really he doesn't have a hit yet obviously in 15 at bat so um I think Houston has some other options uh and and uh one of them I think we're about to talk about I was going to ask if if Reed continues to struggle uh, obviously the Astros can't continue to uh, patch and fill they're going to have to make another move and what is that move likely to be well and this is why I like what the Astros have done here at the same time they promoted Reed they've moved Alex Bregman uh, up from double A AA to triple A now Reed started off the season as as uh, uh Houston's best hitting prospect frankly right now given what's happened this season I think their best hitting prospect uh, is is Bregman if you look at what he's done in the minors he's he's hit 14 at double a before his promotion he'd hit 14 15 homers but more important he had a 42 to 26 base on ball to strikeout rate through 236 at bats those are tremendous plate skills and the kind of skills that make me think he's more inclined to be successful at the major league level than uh, say Reed is and since his promotion he got four hits in his first triple-a game so at least in, in that very small sample he's mashing now Reed uh, I'm sorry Bregman is a natural shortstop uh, Houston has begun playing him at third base, which makes you think that they are thinking about this possibility of moving him to Houston. And fr but frankly, more and more analysts are suggesting that Bregman is actually a better defensive shortstop than Carlos Correa, so there's always that possibility. Uh, regardless, uh, Houston's current third baseman, Luis Wabuena, got plenty of first base experience last year, so he could move over to first if, uh, if Reed doesn't produce. I think Houston's tentative making it up as you go along plan here is to give Reed about a month to see how he does. If he doesn't covet, cut it, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Bregman as plan B right around the trade deadline after or before a few days. So the move shapes up as Reed, I presume you're saying, gets sent back down. They call Bregman up to play somewhere in the infield. Luis Valbuena ends up at first base, and Bregman either ends up playing short or third, and Correa playing the other way. Correa's a big guy. Uh, he wouldn't be the first tall guy to be moved from shortstop to third base. Puts me in mind of Manny Machado. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the, the nice thing about Houston is they have a lot of options here. You know, As we both know, sometimes injuries take care of these things. Um, but they have options if uh, if if Reed doesn't cut it. They could even keep Reed up and and have him platoon, be a part-time player off the bench. Uh, it really depends on he does how he does in the next three four weeks. I think. 
Over in Tampa, Alex Colome has just landed on the DL. He has biceps tendinitis, which is never a good thing, often associated with worse arm problems, and usually means an indefinite return date. Certainly they haven't announced anything yet. Matt Dodge covers the American League East for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What is Matt's take on the uh, situation in Tampa, and especially how the ninth inning is going to be handled for the Rays? Well, if you watch the Rays, Penn give up eight runs in the ninth inning, uh, which ultimately turned a 7-2 lead into a 10-7 loss on Thursday night. Um, things look pretty unsettled. Um, and uh, Erasmo Ramirez was one of the three names that uh, Kevin Cash and Matt mentioned in his piece. He may have pitched himself out of the immediate plans after coughing up four of those ninth inning runs. But as Matt notes, the Rays have ex-starter Matt Andres and, and uh, lefty Xavier Cedeno in the mix, and Cash has pointed to them as well. Both have outpitched Ramirez lately, uh, lately, and I think both are likely to receive uh, the next save opportunities. I think both are worthy of flyers. Uh, their skills aren't awful. It remains to, to see how well they'll do in the ninth inning. That's always a, an interesting situation. Where is Brad Boxberger in all of this? He's recovering from that strained oblique. Could he be a wild card here? Yeah, he could. He's throwing again, and reportedly Tampa Bay could get him back just before or just after the All-Star break if everything goes right. He could get back ahead of Colome, but but think about it. Boxberger has had all kinds of core and oblique issues this season, and he's thrown just one major league inning to date. Uh, What kind of Brad Boxberger comes back if and when he comes back is really kind of up in the air, so it's really nothing to count on. The one thing he has in his favor is I had him on my roster in Tow Wars in the American League League and uh, dropped him, so if he comes back, he'll probably get 40 saves. Uh, in Kansas City, Lorenzo Kane has gone onto the DL with a hamstring strain. It was covered by Alex Becky in the American League Central playing time today, space at Baseball HQ. How does Lorenzo Kane's injury affect Kansas City's outfield? Well, apparently this isn't a bad strain, and at least for now, uh, um, Kansas City thinks that Kane's going to return after missing the minimum, and everyone getting four days off during the All-Star break helps. Uh, but at least for now, the injury breathes a little more life into Jared Dyson's season. Dyson struggled in June. He, he was 9 for 39, which nets out to a 231 batting average. He picked up three stolen bases. But if you look at his year in historical terms, he's pretty much having the typical Jared Dyson season. He's hitting around 260. He's on pace for 25 stolen bases, maybe more with some extended playing time, predominantly playing against right-handed uh, pitching. These are the types of situation he situations that he's normally taken advantage of in the past. So if you need stolen bases over the next couple of weeks, Dyson's a good name to play on if he's available in your league. Um, I think Paulo Orlando is probably going to move over to center field against lefties, giving Brett Eibner, 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 I think, yeah, some at-bats versus left-handed pitching uh, over in right field. Paulo Orlando is an interesting story. Uh, he started off slowly again this year, but he was getting some playing time because of the Alex Gordon injury, and then all of a sudden he just discovered some kind of inner demon, and his his batting average shot way up, and his on-base percentage shot way up as well. But I don't know that Paulo Orlando is, is a long-term solution for the Royals or for a fantasy team. Yeah, pa- Paulo Orlando is hitting three thirty-five over 182 at-bats, uh, uh, his obviously he's doing it on an inflated hit rate, 42 percent. That thing's going to come down, and his expected batting average at 245. He's not making a lot of hard contact. He's hitting a lot of ground balls. I tend to agree. Uh, 
it, it's nice if you had Orlando during his hot streak, but it's nothing I'd look forward to in the near-term future. Just five stolen bases this year, which is uh, kind of a disappointment for anybody who's had uh, Paul Orlando on their roster, hoping that uh, maybe they'd get a few stolen bases out of him as well. On the whole, it just seems like there's not a lot here for fantasy owners to look at, unless you're in a deep American League, uh, league maybe then it starts looking a little more attractive. Yeah, Dyson stolen bases are the, are the, are the thing that, that really pops out with this injuries. Uh, you have Alex Gordon, the lock and left, as long as he stays healthy. Um, and uh, uh, at, at least right now, he looks like uh, he, he's that. So, uh, yeah, not much going on uh, here in, uh, in Kansas City. And just a word to the wise about Paul Orlando as well. His hit rate this year is uh, 42%. 420 BABIP is another way of saying that. But by whatever terminology you use, it's way too high, and it looks like uh, almost a certainty to come down. He's had a nice run, maybe time to sell. Uh, Finally, we've got plenty of roster moves and questions in Seattle. Uh, starting with the somewhat surprising demotion to AAA of Nori Aoki. I know you covered this in Playing Time tomorrow. What are we going to expect from Aoki for the rest of the season in Seattle, and what else might they do? Aoki's uh, demotion uh, was a little bit surprising on the surface that it seemed unusual for an established veteran uh, with a major league contract. Uh, On the business side, though, he had options remaining, and he had a guaranteed contract. He probably could have refused refuse the assignment but uh, he would have he would have put about 5.5 million in uh, in jeopardy his production had really been anemic uh, he, he still has the strong contact rate but his power metrics hard contact uh, hit rate and a career low uh, 245 batting average say his contact is softer than ever and and the big thing about Aoki is that his running game has totally disappeared he's stolen four bases and 11 attempts now he had a foot injury and he took some time off before he got to AAA so it's possible um, if he if he can rediscover some of his uh, batting average skills he'll come back he he still owns a playable 276 batting average against right-handed pitching and he may, and he's a patient enough his 358 on base percentage versus righties is still good too but I think his his return to Seattle really depends on how Dejo Lee and uh, Franklin Gutierrez do in his absence. Uh, he, he's really only marginally rosterable, rosterable in deeper leagues who are using batting average and on-base percentage. Uh, his AAA progress should probably be monitored, but um, this is a guy who um, I, I'm not certain. I, I don't know about his outlook going forward. The number that jumps out at me about Nori Aoki, Jock, is uh, his hard contact index number is 61, and uh, for Listeners who might not remember how this works, 100 is league average. So at 61, he's uh, he's basically slightly better than you or me. Yeah, and he wasn't uh, he wasn't uh, hitting very well um, um, when he was demoted. Uh, when you're hitting 245 and you're not running, and you're not hitting for power. Um, and and Seattle has guys like Gutierrez who can hit a home run off lefty or righty on the bench. Uh, um, you're you know you're you're bound to get a little bit of a timeout at some point. In 2012, he had 30 stolen bases, which is a very useful addition, but he was uh, 30 years old at the time. He's up to 34 years old now, and uh, boy, speed is a young man's skill, generally speaking. Yeah, he's 34 years old, and and there's no telling what that reported foot injury did to his stolen bases. It's one thing you might want to watch in the minors to see if he is running again before he comes comes back up. The the good thing about sending him down uh, demotion-wise versus a a DL stint, 
Um, he would have had to have been on the DL for 15 days. Obviously, it's it's uh, it's 10 days with a demotion, so that works in his favor. But he's still going to have to produce to come back and and reinherit his old at bats again in Seattle. Also, with the Mariners, backup catcher Steve Clevenger has gone on the DL. I think he hurt his finger on a foul tip. The Mariners have been, I guess you'd have to say, forced to recall Mike Zunino from AAA. Of course, Zunino's a former first-round draft pick, ballyhooed at one time as Seattle's catcher of the future and all that. Very hot prospect in fantasy leagues as well. And he did show really good power anytime he was in the big leagues, but horrendous contact rates kept him below the Mendoza line literally for his career. He's a 189 career hitter, I think, something like that. Rod Truesdell picked up this story in playing time today. Now, one thing about Zunino, he's still pretty young, but is he going to play enough to contribute? And if he does play enough, what is he going to contribute? Yeah, you know, the Seattle front office has, has announced that he's going to play more than once a week, but obviously that there's a big gap between once a week and how, how often he's going to play. Um, as you know, Zunino has, has good power, good receiving skills. Um, the problem was, I think, that he was rushed to Seattle after all of the uh, hoopla he got about uh, his power and being the number one pick. Um, he hit for good power in the three years that he was here, but he could not keep his batting average, as you suggest, over 200. It was down around 170 when he got promoted. And the idea in bringing Ionetta in was they wanted to give Zanino a chance to reset and rejump. Um, he's actually been uh, been pretty good in um, in uh, in AAA. Uh, if you look at his numbers, he's batting 282. Still has the power. Hit 15 home runs, all in 248 at bats. The problem that I'm seeing right now with Zanino is that he struck out 31 times in 84 at-bats in June. So it's almost like he's he's in a bit of a slump or he's reversing right now. So I think he's got the same issues. The, the big question now is how it translates to the to Major League Ball after, uh, after this time in AAA. It's a very frustrating combination when you see a guy like Zanino. In 2014, he had 438 at-bats and a 170 power index, a little higher than his expected power index. But nonetheless, that's a very, very solid power index indicative of a guy who could really contribute in the home run and RBI categories. And indeed he did. He had 22 home runs, drove in 60. But at the same time, he's striking out literally one-third of the time that he's up to the plate. And that means that he's going to really limit his own opportunities to drive in runs. He's going to kill you in the category in uh, batting average in your fantasy league. He's not going to provide much in the way of uh, runs scored, of course, because he's down in the order and never on base. It's a frustrating set of skills, and if he could fix the contact issues, I think a lot of good things would come. But how confident can we be that he's going to fix the contact issue? Yeah, and breaking down his AAA performance, I have it in front of me. He's, he only struck out 14 times in April in 73 at-bats, and only 17 times in 91 at-bats in May. But June, the bottom has fallen out, which is something that is, is a little bit disturbing now that he's being promoted in the beginning of July. The 31 strikeouts in 84 at-bats is not very good. It's, it's contact down around again 60 percent uh, and if you're looking at trends at short-term trends and trying to break this down into into fine bits uh, that's not a positive sign if, if you're looking for catching on the other hand let's face it catching is a wasteland most fantasy owners I don't care what kind of a league you're in <laughs> that it, particularly if you have two catchers in your format uh, he's probably worth a flyer uh, it's just not something you can count on 
I'm curious when you say that he actually improved his contact in the first couple of months of the year, did he pay a price in his power? Was his, was his power uh, managing to stay up at those good levels or, or was he not able to generate power because he wasn't selling out so heavily on swinging? Oh yeah, no, and that was the encouraging thing. I have, have Zanino rostered in, in uh, one of my leagues. He hit 12 home runs in those first two months So, and, and he was walking. He walked 16 times. Uh, he's still walking in June, which is which is encouraging. He's walked 12 times in 84 at bats. It's uh, it's the 31 strikeouts that are a little they're a little bothersome. Well, more than a little, yeah. It's a it's a tough decision to make, uh, um, but that's what makes the game fun. Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. Enjoy the Fourth of July weekend, and we'll talk to you again next Friday. Okay, PD. See you then. Jock Thompson is the director of news and analysis at baseballhq.com, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Coming up next, our guest expert interview, Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com, the co-general manager and speculator columnist. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Yes, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Before we get to our feature expert interview, a little trivia question to test your baseball acumen on Canada Day. Name the four Canadian winners of baseball's highest individual honors, a league MVP or a Cy Young. And we'll have the answer for you at the end of the podcast. Now it is time for our feature expert interview, and it's our pleasure to be joined by co-general manager and speculator columnist from BaseballHQ.com, Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Always a pleasure, Patrick. Glad to catch up with you again. Yeah, it's always fun to have you. And uh, before we get started talking about your team, my team, other teams, buying high, selling low, uh, how are your teams doing in fantasy baseball? Pretty decent. Looks like it's. Uh, I have a few irons in the fire that are going to keep me occupied all summer. Uh, I'm playing in a bunch of mixed leagues around the industry. My labor team is in third or fourth place, depending on the day, out of 15. Uh, my Tout Wars team is not as good. That was down in the bottom third or so, but has been surging lately, so I have some hope for that one. Uh, there's a league that was drafted in January at the FSTA conference in Dallas, and I am ping-ponging between first and second with Greg Ambrosius from the NFBC there, so it looks like we're going to have a a two-team race all summer. So those industry leagues are uh, looking like I have some opportunities to bring home some hardware this year, so I'm excited about that. How far ahead of the field do you have to be where you feel like you said it's a two-team race between you and Ambrosius in that one league? How far ahead of of the rest of them are you in that league? It's it's north of 25 points. It's 25 or 28 points, something like that. I think we're in the, you know, in a 13-team league. Greg and I are really high up. We're both sitting around, you know, 110, 112 out of a possible 130 points. And third place is, you know, in the upper 80s or something like that. Now I'm the one who in in labor, and I think it was 20. 
2012 or 2013, I blew a 20-point lead in September, so I'm not one to count ticket, count chickens, excuse me. But, uh, you know, there is some definite separation in the standings here at the halfway point. I often wonder about uh, how soon it is that we can start figuring how solid our positions are in our leagues. Uh, there was a notice, I don't know if you saw it, in the HQ subscriber forums where one of the somebody posted that they're in the Tout Wars American League league, and uh, I'm in that league, and, and the he was absolutely right about the second through 10th spots are separated by, I think nine or 10 points. And he feels like, uh, you know, we, any one of us could finish second. And then he got offered a trade by the leader, Larry Schechter, who has a pretty substantial lead. I think it's 10 points over second and 18 points over third. I'm in third. And he said he had a, a this trade offer from Larry Schechter, which would cinch the title for Larry, give him an even bigger lead and would give this particular poster a real good shot at, at a, at tightening his hold on second spot. And he was wondering, is that, you know, a, a fair deal to do to the rest of the league? And I wonder, is it a fair deal to do to himself? Because I know Larry's got a nice, like I said, 18-point lead right now over third, but that doesn't seem insurmountable with three months to go. All he has to do is get one injury, and he falls back to the pack pretty quickly. Yeah, I think you're right that the timing is a huge element there. You know, we've had some discussions, or I remember, a, I don't know if it was a, forum discussion or maybe it was a Q&A among the staff several years ago about a similar situation but it was much later in the season where you're thinking you know in exchange for lo- making a trade that locks up a title for someone else you're locking up uh, a secondary finish or ensuring your place in the standings or giving yourself an opportunity to move up a couple of spots maybe into a money spot whatever it is and you know the later in the season it gets the more I might have a problem with that. But at this time of year, hey, I I agree with you. I don't think there's such a thing that anything is locked up at this point. And even if the most likely outcome is that it cinches a title for somebody and you get some other secondary benefit from a deal, there's still plenty of time for somebody else who wants to take a run at Larry to make a big move and do that. There's not, you know, this is probably not the last bullet to be fired. So I think... In, here in late June, early July, you know, it's certainly we're certainly in the mode where all is fair. Oh, I always think all is fair. I'm just wondering if he's throwing in the towel too soon on his own chances to win the league. Oh, sure. Like, I, 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 that that that's my point. I, I think he's maybe saying that Larry's lead is insurmountable at 18 points over the third place, but he's only t- 10 or 12 in front of second place, so he's any deal he makes and he's not the second place guy. So if he makes this deal and gives Larry another 10 or 15 points, that does cinch the league for Larry pretty much. And then everybody else is battling for second. And it just seems to me, it's a little early to make that, to make that decision that there's no way any of us can catch Larry, including the guy himself. Well, yeah. And if you think about what you're describing in that scenario, from Larry's perspective, Larry doesn't think it's locked up because Larry's chasing those additional points he can get from this trade. He doesn't think he has enough yet. He's chasing, you know, further standings upside. He's not treating his current position as a mortal lock or anything like that. So, yeah, in general, I don't think anything is, you know, written in concrete here at, you know, before the All-Star break. There's, you know, somebody who runs hot and finishes, you know, first at the All-Star break could easily, you know, have the ninth or 10th best team in the second half and end up finishing fourth or fifth. And just to be clear, you don't have any uh, objection to a guy making a deal on the basis that it's bad for everybody else in the league. Not right now. I think it's a, it's at least a conversation 
about playing kingmaker, you know, at a at a very late season trade deadline at like the end of August or something. If you're backing up the, you know, the the one piece that a guy needs to seal a deal and you're not getting any real standings benefit from it, you know, those that that at least is you know an ethical conversation worth having. I don't know if I have a problem with it, but you know, that's not where we are. We're in we're in June July. There's nobody is only one piece away from a title at this point. Right, we're almost exactly halfway through. And earlier this week in your GM's office column, you talked about your NFBC team and you have a truly remarkable recovery. You had season-opening injuries to Kyle Schwarber and A.J. Pollock. So uh, even before the season started, you're down a couple of very expensive uh, pieces in your auction. And at the end of April, sure enough, you were 13th out of 15. Now you're all the way up into the top spot as of a week or so ago. I don't know if you're still there, but you're well up there. How did you make such a gigantic move after losing two pivotal players on your roster? Well, let's let's water down the credit you're giving me a little bit. I only had Pollock. I didn't have Schwarber, too. I had written a column about the losses of Pollock and Schwarber and their impact on fantasy teams, but I only lost Pollock. Losing both of them would probably have been too much to overcome. I'm, I'm on a good run, but I'm not a miracle worker. <laughs> All right, but even losing Pollock, probably your second or third most expensive guy, he certainly was on most teams. Uh, it seems like e- even in a mixed league, it would be impossible to replace a guy that high in your list. Yes, I, th- that's absolutely true. And yeah, Pollock was our second round draft pick, so you know we had you know high expectations for him, and I drafted him, and he was hurt all within a you know twenty four hour period. So that was certainly a bitter pill to swallow. Uh, kind of, there's been no one event that has sort of catapulted us up there's been a lot since that one injury that has gone right to sort of turn around the ship there I, I think the biggest thing though was in late April when uh, Nomar Mazara came up and was the big fab prize on uh, a weekend of fab bidding in late April after he had played for five days or so and everybody was chasing after him uh, I'm we made a significant bid on Mazzara, something like 400 out of our $1,000 of fab or something like that, which proved not to be nearly enough to get Mazzara. But the contingent bid that we landed uh, after not getting Mazzara was Adam Duvall, who has turned out to actually be even better and has basically been a, a proxy for what we expected from Pollock. So that sort of, you know, in one shot, sort of erased the uh, the impact of the Pollock injury and at least got us back to level where, you know, the team we drafted is basically the team that's on the field rather than a team you know, minus Pollock that we're trying to band-aid with. We got, you know, we got something better than a band-aid. We got a full replacement in, in sort of one shot in Duvall. And to give credit where it's due, you were saying even before the season, a lot of BaseballHQ.com analysts and writers were very high on Adam Duvall, and that must have played a, a part in your making the decision to back up your Mazara bid with Duvall, who at the time was probably not as high on people's radar as he was on Baseball HQ's. Yeah, we got him fairly cheap, and the bid we made for him was actually unopposed. So the other, at least the other fourteen guys in our league, were not yet on him. Uh, so you know, obviously, when you're playing in the Fab game, you know you can, you know, pay a lot of money for a guy like Nav- Mazzara or a guy after he has his breakout or his hot week or you know a promotion or whatever it is. Those are the guys that everybody chases, and they get expensive. But it's if you can strike, you know, before the guy has that surge or before he takes the job and, you know, scoop up the guy a week early rather than a week late and pay, you know, probably literally a tenth of the cost, you know, a couple of those moves obviously have multiple benefits. And then not only you get the impact, but you're, you know, you're saving that giant chunk of fab for some other use down the road. 
And you said in the piece that uh, you also had some uh, really good performances from your other top draft picks, like they delivered what you were expecting, and you got uh, two or three guys down the roster who have uh, produced way better than you expected. Yeah, my overall take on the thing, sort of breaking it down, how we had gone through this surge, was that the impact or the uh, the outcomes we'd gotten from the rest of our draft picks really didn't feel remarkable or it didn't feel like outliers. It didn't really feel like it was this perfect draft where you sort of struck gold on every pick. It was really just more of a template of you know how you want your draft to go when you're mapping it out in advance. And that our other top five picks were Goldschmidt and Bumgarner and Nelson Cruz and Carlos Gonzalez. And those guys have done just about exactly what I would have wanted from our top five picks outside of Pollock. So they have sort of built that good base that we wanted. And we've hit a couple of things late in the draft that have, you know, paid off big. We had Jonathan VR in the 15th or 16th round or something like that. And he's, I think, literally playing to a first round valuation right now. And he's also running like the wind, which replaces part of Pollock's loss production. That was a Pollock skill. So he's not only outperformed, but he's outperformed in an area where we were at a deficit. So that's really been a benefit. And the other thing was uh, that we got late in the draft was we got a third closer in Sam Dyson in round 20-something. So, you know, getting a couple of late picks in the back half of your draft to re- return significant value is why you throw those darts in the end game. So, you know, if, like I was saying, if you map out a draft and you say, I want my top five or 10 picks to return par value and somewhere late in the draft, I want to hit on two or three of the darts that I throw that return significant value. That's kind of exactly the template that I hit on. And even with the Pollock injury, that's been enough to, you know, have one of the top ranking teams in the overall contest right now. So, you know, it it doesn't take a lightning strike of, oh, I hit on all of my round 20 through 25 picks and they're all you know, returning first round value now. It doesn't take, you know, that kind of luck to be in first place in your league or, you know, be contending for an overall title. It just takes sort of a faithful delivery of what you want your draft to look like. That was my overall takeaway. But you did make some good pickups. Zach Davies has done uh, well for you. Uh, I noticed that you uh, you mentioned that you picked up Adam Duval. You, you had a pickup in Logan Morrison, I think is especially after you picked him up, started to really started to, to pick up his performance. You had, you had some good pickups. Matt Adams has been really solid for you. And it just goes to show you that even if you start very, very slowly in a league, uh, slow and steady wins the race. You have to keep, plug, keep plugging away and keep trying and keep making your moves and, and don't give up. Yeah, don't give up and you know, keep, keep grinding it out. And especially you know, someone who, when I wrote this article, someone noted in the con- comments area that you know, sometimes grinding it out actually gets easier now and into the second half of the year because some people start tuning out for summer vacation or fantasy football or whatever it is. And you know, if you've scratched your way out of a deficit or you've even started to claw out of the hole now, you know, there's still enough time left and that, that you can continue to dig out of the hole and maybe sneak into something late as people are you know, not paying attention. So even if you don't have the, you know, the sort of get out of jail free card of picking up an Adam Duvall and you're trying to do it piece by piece, week by week, you know, if you've made some progress now, there's some hope for thinking that 
you know, there's even if you keep at it, there's even more gains to be realized in the second half. And even if you haven't managed to helium your way up from 13th spot to second or first, even if you get from 13th spot to sixth or seventh, another advantage you have at this time of year and as we go on even later into the year is you know what you have and you know what you need. And it allows you to make much more targeted moves, including trading some uh, big performers off your own roster because they can no longer help you. They've done as much as they can. And I don't know how your team stands, but the example I'll use is VR. It may be that you realize, hey, there's very little more to be gained in stolen bases, but I could put those stolen bases on some other team or they'll go by the guy I'm chasing. And meanwhile, maybe I can get back some homers and RBIs that would move me in those categories. So there's the, the other advantage of second half moves, I think, is that you really have a much better ability to target your categories. Yeah, that's exactly right. In some ways, you know, having a, a wider lens in the first half where you're sort of just saying, like, I'll take value anywhere I can get it, you know, as you're trying to search for the next breakout or someone whose opportunity is expanding, that you know, sort of that wider lens sort of gives you the opportunity to th- throw fab in any direction where you think there's a possible payoff. But like you said, the searching in the second half as you're tr- start, starting to manage to the categories actually gets more targeted. You end up doing less research and your number of candidates is actually narrowed. So you can, you know, zero in on what you really need and, you know, allocate your resources accordingly. Yeah, it's much more efficient in the second half, that's for sure. It's also much more difficult in the sense that uh, you may realize that a trade makes a lot of sense, but sometimes your trading partner isn't quite so sure and thinks you're trying to pull a fast one on him. And why should I give you Paul Goldschmidt for, you know, Billy Hamilton? I guess he got hurt the other night, but uh, then you say, because you can pick up six points in stolen bases and, you know, your home runs are worthless. Well, he's still not good enough, and you get that kind of argument going. Right. On the one hand, it might be easier to identify what you need, but the flip side of that coin might be it might be harder to find it. Quite a while back, Ray, your speculator column looked at what you called buy-high candidates. These are players who had auspicious starts that might have encouraged their owners to sell high on them, but who had good skills, which made them good at, good targets to acquire even at high prices. A great example of that, Ian Desmond in Texas got off to a pretty uh, impressive start. A lot of people remembered a couple of years ago when he was terrible, and so they thought, I'll sell him high right now. And you looked at a few of those kind of guys. We won't go through all of them, but has any of them changed? Has any of them become less attractive as a buy-high candidate since you wrote the column a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, one in particular stood out when I went back and looked at this. Uh, I actually feel like most of the guys who I listed ended up have ended up holding up fairly well. But the one who's kind of blown up and who I would take back at this point is Jimmy Nelson. Uh, he looked pretty good in April and May. And by our traditional metrics, he was sort of outpitching his skills. He was being propped up by a little bit of good fortune on his strand rate in particular. Uh, he was you know, leaving a lot of runners on base, and that was helping his ERA. I kind of postulated, uh, you know, sort of in the out-on-the-limb mode of the speculator, that Nelson has a track record of a multi-year run of sort of bad strand rates, so that maybe... You know, if you get away from looking at a pitcher's performance on a, you know, within a season and look at it across multiple seasons, then maybe he was just experiencing some sort of career wide strand strand rate regression. And maybe he could finish this season with a, you know, sort of a a strand rate that we might consider a little better than what pitchers typically support. Well, that's been completely blown up. My theory went right out the window as he's hung up an ERA that starts with like a seven or something in in the month of June and his strand rate has crashed right back down to earth. So uh, that was exactly the wrong time to write about Jimmy Nelson as it turns out. But, But some of the other choices in that column held up better, so I don't feel too bad about it. The week after you wrote about your buy highs, you had some sell lows. 
at the time they were players who were pretty much beyond redemption. They were playing poorly and their skills said that there was very little chance of rebound. You might as well get rid of them if you could find somebody who thought he was getting a bargain. Did you see any unexpected comebacks in that group? Yeah, I put some, there were some big names in that group. I was I was sort of pretty far out on the speculator limb there in my 20% and under plays because there were some names that, you know, by normal standards, late May, early June might have been too early to give up on. Uh, one that has rebounded a little bit is Jose Abreu. I had looked at his numbers at the time and his underlying indicators and really couldn't find a lot to be excited about. He was hitting a lot of balls on the ground. He was striking out more than he has in the past, wasn't hitting any line drives, wasn't making hard contact. It really just looked like you know, he was sort of lost. Uh, and I got worried about you know, whether it was a hidden injury or the fact that you know, for Abreu, he's only been here... F- He's still only a couple of years out of Cuba. We don't have the longest-term track record to look at him. There are still sort of some unknowns about what he really is in some sense, or at least some you know some shadows of questions. So I got worried at the time of the writing that the underperformance that he was showing might last longer than we would normally expect of a you know a premium talent like that. He's shown some signs of improving since then. The contact rate is back up. He's still hitting more balls on the ground than I'd like, but he's something like over 300 batting average with five or six home runs in June, which is a much more typical Jose Abreu month. So it's only a one-month turnaround, but uh, it might have been too early to actually close the door on Jose Abreu for for 2016. In BaseballHQ.com articles, there's a comments field below where subscribers can respond to the article, and then the writer will respond to the responses, and you get a conversation going uh, in addition to whatever happens in the Baseball HQ subscriber forums, which are more freeform. But in the comments to your sell low story, uh, one of your uh, subscriber readers asked if you were giving up on Justin Upton, and you said at the time you were holding out hope that he would still be able to rebound, and he sure has. Since the story was written, uh, Upton is batting 259, which is up about 40 points from where he was. He's got a 344 on base percentage which is good in where I the league where I have him he has five home runs 20 RBIs four steals with no caught stealings 13 runs if you prorate the 22 games since the story came out to a full 150 game season you're talking about pretty much the kind of elite production we expected at the start of the year 35 homers 30 bags 100 plus RBIs 100 runs how likely do you think Justin Upton is to maintain the level of production he has now rebounded to I'm I'm obviously even more optimistic than I was a month ago because now he's actually given us some tangible reason for optimism, as you point out. I don't know that I would be willing to project him to continue what he's done over the last 22 games for the rest of the season. I think the smart way a projection model would deal with that would be to sort of say, I don't care as much about the week-to-week, month-to-month variation and what he's done for the aggregate of the first half is sort of what he is or what we should expect. And looking at our projection for him, that still doesn't add up to anything exciting uh, just because those first six or eight weeks were just so bad. That said, I looking at that projection, which is something like a 230s batting average and another 12 home runs or something like that, I would take the over on that. I would give him some benefit of the you know, longer-term track record of we know what he was coming into the season and there was reason we were so optimistic about him and give him you know, something of a mulligan on those first six or eight weeks, especially given that you know, he was transitioning to a new team. It's his first time in the American League, all of those sorts of things. Uh, I would feel good about him, but perhaps not to the degree of 
keeping up this 22-game surge for the next 80. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy, speculator, columnist, and co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com. And Ray, at the BaseballHQ.com site, we've started thumping the tub a little bit for first pitch Arizona in Phoenix this fall. Some of our listeners will need only this reminder, and they'll rush out and sign up right away because it's very popular with people who've been to the event before. So let's start off with some basic information. When is first pitch Arizona for 2016? So this year we are out in Arizona from November 3rd to the 6th. Uh, runs from, the event runs from Thursday night through Sunday noontime or so. It's the best baseball weekend of the year, uh, perhaps next to draft day, but I think even now, uh, you know, that's probably a toss-up between the two of those. Uh, just a fantastic weekend for people who aren't uh, familiar with the format. If you've ever been to one of the spring first-pitch forums where we do sort of a three-hour, you know, seminar diving into different topics, this is sort of that on... PEDs. We spend Friday, Saturday, and Sunday mornings doing uh, you know, seminar presentation, debate-type programs about various topics or scouting facts and flukes of 2016 performances, looking at video of the Arizona Fall League prospects, all of those sorts of things. And then in the afternoons and the evenings, we break up and we go out to the Arizona Fall League ball games. We catch uh, usually four games in the course of a weekend. Uh, the schedule isn't out yet, but we expect that to again be the weekend of the Fall Stars game, which is a great event and an opportunity to see a number of uh, the game's top prospects on one field. There are only a couple hundred people in most of these games. Front row seats are readily available, or if you want to go sit in a corner and have a whole section of yourself, you can do that. Uh, we have a huge roster of industry writers and speakers and analysts who are more than willing to be fully approachable and share their time and their insights with everybody. It's a great community atmosphere. People who come for the first time can't always comment to us that they can't believe how welcoming and inclusive everyone was and how they got to you know, rub elbows with people whose work they see and interact with all year long, get to put a face to some people whose work they've looked at for a long time. It's, uh, I can't say enough good things about it. I'll stop rambling. It is. It's really exciting to be able to, from the point of view of somebody who's worked in the business for a while and has a presence at BaseballHQ.com uh, through the site and through the podcast here, I can't tell you how uh, how nice it is when people come up and say, I listen to the podcast or I read your articles and I really like them. Or sometimes they say, I listen to your podcast and here's what I would change if I was you. And, you know, it's a, it's a very open and interactive experience. As you said, it's, it's, uh, Something that I don't think most people get to enjoy in their hobby in that uh, it's, I think, relatively rare that the, that the experts or the leading figures in, in a field are so uh, down to earth with everybody else who's involved in the hobby because basically we all really like fantasy baseball and we'll talk about it with anybody. Talk your ear off, in fact. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the other thing about it is even from a, you know, professional sort of inside the industry point of view, it always amazes me and impresses me how everyone within the industry who comes to this conference and is willing to share their best work, not just with the attendees, but with other members of the industry who are there and might work for websites that compete with each other during the course of the season. Or these people compete in expert leagues that where they're literally putting you know, their reputation on the line. But you know, the whole Arizona weekend is essentially everyone's best information on the table for for everyone's consumption and the, you know that attitude and that transparency you know really just kind of sets the tone for the whole weekend and you 
you hear from everybody, and I'm the same way. You just at, at points during the weekend, you just even I just want to sit there and just be a sponge and absorb all of the you know incredible insights that are being put up, be, being brought forth from people who you know quite honestly have you know, more knowledge in a particular subject area than I could ever hope to get. And I just you know soak up pieces of this and pieces of that and take it back. And I think the common thing you hear from everybody is you can't go to this weekend and not go home a better player, better prepared for the coming season. You know, last year, uh, what that really stood out for me because I was not at all familiar with uh, daily fantasy baseball. I had dabbled in it. I had like $40 on deposit at one of the big sites and I played whenever I remembered, you know, it wasn't that big a deal. Tout Wars had a little game that I played every week, but I wasn't very good at it. And and then I went to First Pitch Arizona, and I saw on the on the agenda that they had a daily fantasy seminar, and it was in a small room. There wasn't that many people there, but what a lineup! Todd Zola, who writes about daily fantasy for ESPN, Derek Cardi, who's another ESPN guy who's had a tremendous track record of success in daily fantasy, and then to top it off, Dave Potts, who's won I think a couple of events for a million bucks a piece, and he doesn't play the huge numbers of entries like some of the uh, uh, problem children of that business have been accused of putting in, you know, thousands of entries by using computer scripts. Dave Potts just figures out who his best lineup is to win, puts in a handful of entries, and he's a big winner. And there he is sitting there in a seminar situation, taking questions, talking about what he does, completely open about his planning and strategy. It was fantastic. Yeah, I was in that room too, and it was definitely one of the highlights of the event. As you know, as I think Todd Zola, who you mentioned, said at the, at the introduction of that panel. Just so you know, the chops of this panel, you know, Dave Potts, myself, and you know Derek Cardi have won you know two million and seventy five dollars playing playing daily fantasy sports <laughs> yeah. this year. You know, it's, uh, you know, because Dave was uh, you know. It, uh, carrying the panel, obviously, but uh, yeah, that was that was a great session. It was you know an hour, you know, seventy five minutes long, and there had to be you know just twenty five or thirty people in the room who I think all probably picked up a lot of insights that I similar to what you're saying are probably it, it, it would be hard for me to imagine that they're not getting better results this year after uh, after listening to those three people you know sort of turn out their pockets and share all their secrets. And not meaning to brag, but I listened to what they said and I started applying it. And I started winning money on the cash games that I was playing at the uh, big site. And in Tout Wars this year, I, I won, uh, I was at top 10 in four straight weeks and got a golden ticket to the final. So uh, I, I learned something and I got better at the game, exactly as you say. I know you uh, are still sort of forming up the agenda for this year's event, but have you thought of any new events that you're going to add to the program? Yeah, we're. it's a little early for that, but we're certainly... Uh, certainly starting to take shape now. We have, uh, you know, the poll out to all the industry guys to find out exactly who's coming. Uh, you know, certainly you know, there, there's a core crew that shows up every year and some, you know, we've been injecting some new blood in the last couple of years too. So sort of having an atten- a speaker roster is a key element of, you know, developing the program. The other thing that we do that is, uh, you know, critical to that is we run a survey of all the attendees that they turn in as they're leaving the event uh, and we, you know, take those. And I certainly read them, you know, on the plane on the way home last year. But then they kind of went on the shelf for a while. And I just re- reread those in the last week or two. And you know, the attendees, you know, while as we said, they all, uh, you know, universally praise the event. But they all also are always a source of terrific ideas for, you know, the format or different topics they'd like to hear from, et cetera. So we've got sort of a 
working punch list of things that we're exploring if we can find the right topic and the right speakers to deploy them. I, I don't want to pitch them here just in case, you know, some of them will come together and some of them won't. That's just the nature of being four months out from the event. But uh, I got a lot of stuff on the drawing board that I'm excited about, and at least some of it will end up in the final program. How about a live uh, Baseball HQ podcast recording? Yes, sign me up for that. We should definitely do that. I think it would be fun because there's lots of people who like the show and they might like to see what goes on behind the scenes. I remember quite a long time ago this year, I did a master notes uh, talking about what goes on in putting the show together. And uh, I wasn't sure how it would go over. And man, did I get a lot of positive comments about, you know, some of the history of it and so forth. People found it really interesting. And I guess you said that we will be sticking with some of the, uh, some of this tried and true uh uh, events at First Pitch Arizona. The Facts or Flukes column is always popular. There'll be a lot of scouting content, of course. Yes, there'll be. We always do Facts and Flukes on sort of the, uh, you know, probably fifteen or twenty, you know, some of the outlying performances from this from the season that just ended, and try to figure out what's real and what's not. Uh, there's always, uh, you know, we always kick off the session on Friday morning, our first day there, before we go to the ballpark with a, you know, sort of in-depth scouting report of the top. 20 or 30 prospects you're going to see over the course of the weekend complete with uh you know complete with video and uh you know scouting breakdowns last year uh jim callis did that for us i don't quite know yet who's gonna be driving that session this year but you know certainly it'll be you know video driven again and give everyone sort of uh you know the equipment to go out and you know spend the rest of the weekend checking out you know some prospects they know about and some they don't and you know we'll mix in a bunch of new things last year one of the new things we did was a there was a big hit was we had a uh, a beat writer panel with uh, Nick Pacoro from the Arizona Republic and Mike Berardino, who covers the Twins up in Minnesota, both uh, sort of spent an hour sort of telling sort of the ins and outs of what it's like to be on the beat. And, you know, inevitably you get some good clubhouse stories out of that. Th- those are always fun. So uh, we'll do something like that again to, you know, try to get some uh, some different perspectives from, you know, the scouting community. We have some people who are, you know, work within the game who are c- kind enough to share some insights for us, you know, get the media angle to, you know, it's really try to get a, you know, 360 view degree view of this game that we love and as many you know different perspectives on it as we can in three days a lot of those uh, insider events are really well attended and really interesting we had uh, some general manager assistant general manager level people from inside the clubs we've had senior scouts from inside the clubs and much of what they say they start by saying please don't repeat this because it's pretty uh, intense the information that you get and of course we respect their wishes not to talk about anything in detail we, we both I'm sure have stories about that uh, you mentioned uh, the scouting session that goes on bef- on Friday morning uh, have we got any idea of some of the top prospects that we might expect to see down there in the Arizona League? The lists actually come out in August, uh, and you know, a lot of times what happens is, especially on the pitching side, the top pitchers that you see out there are generally pitchers who, for whatever reason, missed some time this year, who you know spent some time on the DL in the minors, and you know need to you know catch up on their innings quota for the year or whatever it is. So you know, for those reasons, it's a little tough to project who's going to be there uh and i'm not necessarily the guy who's closest to you know the guy who's really emerging in single a this year who can you know might might end up using arizona as sort of a finishing school or jumping off point to a you know an early call up next year but uh we'll get brent or next time you talk to rob gordon that's a great question for him because those guys uh you know are certainly better equipped to answer that question than i am 
I know every year there are some great deals on the registration fees. You can get a really good deal from the hotel if you act quickly. Uh, give us some of those financial details and uh, and deadlines for registration and booking. Yes, so registration's open now. It's been open for a week or two, and uh, as you said at the top of the se- segment here, you know some people just need to know that registration is open and then they automatically come in and click re- click register right away because they've been coming for 10, 15, 20 years now. So those registrations are coming in, but you know new newcomers or people who haven't been back there in a few years are certainly more than welcome to. It's a highly inclusive community, as we were saying. Uh, the first registration deadline is July 8th, next weekend. And the general rule is the earlier you register, the, bre- the best price you'll get. So our best price, which is the current one, is $249 registration for the weekend. Uh, that price is good till July 8th, and uh, we will start ratcheting it up a little bit from there throughout the rest of the summer. The hotel, as you said, is also a good deal. The Courtyard Salt River is our host this year. It's just down the street from a couple of the ballparks where we spend a lot of our time, so it's highly convenient in that sense. The room block is, I believe, $115 a night. The information for that's on the website. If you go to Baseball HQ, there's a giant logo over on the right-hand side now with our First Pitch Arizona logo. If you click on that, you can get all the information. You can get, you know, take a look at last year's program and speakers to get a sense of what it would look like this year and all the hotel and registration details, et cetera. I believe this is the 22nd annual First Pitch Arizona Symposium. How many have you attended? This will be my sixth or seventh. Uh, I've done probably four in a row now and you know, had, was on a sort of every second or third year schedule uh, you know, back in the earlier 2000s before I you know, had sort of risen up the ranks to, the, uh, you know, to, to now r- running the site with Brent. So when I was just a uh, staff attendee, I was hitting it every couple of years. But uh, you know, once you go, you really sort of have the itch to come back every time, and I can't imagine I'm going to miss another one anytime soon. I think I'm up to eight or nine uh, coming up this year, and um, I had to miss a couple of years for for various reasons, family and moving around and job and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, it's something I really, really don't want to miss any year. Tell me before we drop this topic and move on, uh, what are some of your favorite memories from some of the past events? You know, there are a couple that people talk about. Uh, you know, I think there are a couple of common ones that long-time attendees have. The, the, the older crowd, and I don't know if you were going this early, Patrick, but back in – 2001 or something like that uh, everybody who was out there saw a young third baseman named Albert Pujols just light the league on fire and you and use that to draft him in their uh, in, in their leagues the following year to great success uh, that was a little before my first appearance but the one that sticks out for me was uh, 2010 or 11 one of those years uh, we were at a game on a Thursday night or Friday night and you know one of those games where there's you know 100 people in the stands and everyone's got front row seats and uh in the outfield that night in the same outfield for uh, for one of the two teams were Mike Trout and Bryce Harper. So that's that's one that's uh, always going to stick out for me. It was my first time seeing those guys and Harper was, you know, still a teenager at that point and Trout wasn't much more than that. They were both uh, I think the following year they would both make their big league debuts, but uh getting getting away eyes on both of them and having them in the same lineup and one playing left field and one playing center was uh was certainly pretty cool and a uh, you know statement of the kind of thing you occasionally get to see out there. I remember that Trout-Harper game as well. Uh, I didn't really notice them in the outfield. I noticed them standing side by side because they were hitting third and fourth in the lineup. And when the inning was uh, starting, 
the the uh, one of them was on deck and the next uh, was in the hole and they were standing there side by side just talking and you realize when you look forward you, you just couldn't help but think to yourself these are going to be two giant stars in this league just based on everything I've read uh, as I recall they didn't neither of them had a particularly great game no I think that's right I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure they had hit between a, a hit between them trout might have hit a ball hard or something but that was about it I also remember that same year, Ray, that uh, uh, there was a Tampa Bay prospect. I don't even might even have been in the same game, and I won't mention who he was because there's no need in casting aspersions. But he just looked like he didn't want to be there. He didn't look like he was having any fun. He was just going through the motions. He just didn't have any of that joie de vivre that you'd expect from a young guy playing baseball for a living and making a pretty handsome sum for doing it. And I thought to myself, if I ever get a chance to draft that guy. I'm going to remember this moment because I probably won't draft him. And I never did, and he was never really that good either. And uh, there's all kinds of things that pop into your mind when you get to see these players up close in this way. Another memory I have is being in a day game, and uh, we were watching, and again, as you said, hardly anybody there, but uh, one player really stood out. He, he hit a triple, and I've in all my life, and I've seen my share of baseball, I never saw a guy go from home to third that fast, ever, just flying around the bases is the only way to describe it. Made a couple of great catches in the outfield, like long-running catches, uh, stole a base easily, and I thought to myself, if I ever get the chance to draft Andrew McCutcheon, I'm going to take it, and I did, and it really paid off. Oh, I know who, I knew exactly who you were talking about. I remember that, that game, too. I think he may also have hit a home run. Uh, he was just such a tremendous all-around ball player. And then I also remember that the first year we were at the Salt River Hotel, uh, they had that fire pit. There's a fire pit out behind the property. And uh, after the games were over, people, uh, all the attendees would gather around the fire pit, share a few beers and, and a few laughs and a few uh, anecdotes about the games they saw and everything. It was a great social experience as well as being a great sort of fantasy baseball uh, educational experience. Yeah, I really do like the uh, Salt River Hotel we're going back to for this year, and that fire pit is you know one of the specific reasons. I think it even adds to the uh, you know the community aspect of it. The uh, you know the, the, the other hotel we've stayed at, the DoubleTree, has a lot of advantages too. But the uh, you know that the lobby and fire pit and patio area at Salt River really just leads to a lot of uh, a lot of new friendships over the course of the weekend. As uh, as you said, as beverages get passed around or anecdotes or what have you in an earlier gm's office column you talked about the leading indicator tools at the baseball hq site before we move on to uh, studs and duds maybe quickly whip through some of the new stuff or some of the interesting stuff that's going on at baseballhq.com yeah so the uh, our latest edition is uh, a, a piece of research that we did last year and finally have rolled into the site fully it's uh you know, one of the sort of holy grails of fantasy baseball is trying to come up with a better way to, to to project wins. You know, we've sort of been veering in recent years. A lot of people have gone away from wins as a category because they're so random and so not a skill. But, you know, we haven't gotten rid of them completely. And, you know, one of the sort of the holy grail quests has come, been coming up with a better way to project them. And Matt Cederholm did a nice piece of research last year on a better way to project wins using the... Uh, Pythagorean theorem that Bill James came up with for team performance and he sort of plugged a starting pitcher element into that and got really good results so expected wins is now up on the site as sort of our newest metric and one we'll be uh, making more heavily heavy use of going forward in you know preseason projections and that sort of thing uh, the leading indicator section like you were talking about is one of the 
you know, underutilized areas of the site, which is why I wrote a column sort of drawing attention to it. You know, we're pretty open source about our data and our metrics. And, you know, you can always download our full set of projections and data and do, uh, you know, slice and dice it yourself any way you want to. But the leading indicator section is sort of meant to save you that trouble and have some, you know, common data slices or common filters that, you know, are designed to highlight players with top tier skills or players whose skills are changing for good or for bad, et cetera. You know, if you go through there and just sort of click on a, bu a bunch of links and there are probably 50 of them in there, if you surf through there, especially, you know, as you're trying to figure out your fab bids for the week or whatever, a, a name or two will sort of always catch your eye as like, oh, I didn't realize he belonged in this sort of company, either for the good or for the bad. So it's always a good reminder to go take a look there because uh, whether you're looking for something specific or just looking to sort of learn something that you didn't know or have something to catch your eye it's uh it, that's exactly what it's designed for and it's something i do on a on a weekly basis trying to sort of broaden my horizon or you know put somebody on my radar who wasn't wasn't there previously i saw the other day that we've announced that ryan bloomfield who does a commentary here at baseballhq.com has been named uh, the baseballhq.com manager for uh social media you're being aggressive about pursuing other avenues to get baseball hq out to the readers and subscribers talk about that effort a little bit yeah so ryan is doing uh taking on that role for us and he's you know <laughs> there are many reasons for it but uh you know one of those things is he is uh younger than me and more in touch with the social media community and sort of sort of the way that works and he's just flat out better at it than I am. So, you know, Brent has been sort of driving the Twitter side of it and I've handled Facebook, but we, you know, in the course of, you know, just reviewing duties and reviewing, you know, how best to use our time and how best to utilize other people, you know, Ryan's got kind of the aptitude for that. He's got the aptitude for a heck of a lot of things. Uh, you've certainly talked about him winning the uh, Fantasy Sports Writers Association Award for Article of the Year last year. Uh, so he's, um, you know, he's got a lot of talents and one of them is... You know, he's pretty uh, quippy and insightful on social media. He's put, he put up a chart the other week of uh, something that escapes me right now, but I, it came up in my Twitter feed, and I'm like, wow, he's just really better at this than I am. <laughs> it's, for that reason, uh, you know, I think we're hoping he's going to uh, sort of kick up the quality of our social media content because he's got the uh, – he's just flat-out got the skills. Anything else that BaseballHQ.com would like to add this year or in the next few years? Oh, yeah. There's, you know, especially in the data world, there's always more happening and we're keeping an eye on it. Uh, one of the things we did uh, a month or two ago that's really just starting to reap benefits for us is we really went out and did a hiring cycle where we brought in a bunch of new writers who gave us some fresh insights, in particular in the uh, research and analysis area. Uh, you've done some heavy lifting over there in the past couple of years, but that's uh, that's an area where you almost can't have enough hands and having more people, you know, taking deep dives into something that catches their eye or, you know, taking a search for a new metric, those sorts of things uh, where we really just wanted to invest more resources. And the way we've always handled this data explosion of, you know, StatCast and uh, advanced media and all of that stuff, you know, some of the stuff you talked about with Corey Schwartz a couple of weeks ago is we always drive it from a research point of view and we'd never go out and grab data just for the sake of having data. And if we want to know how to use the data and how we expect to present the data to users before we bring it in. So right now the research guys are off sort of, you know, fishing in that pool. And as they find new things, we'll be bringing them back in here onto the site. You know, the expected wins is sort of a you know very recent example of that, but there's uh, there's certainly more of that to come.
That's an interesting point about the new flood of data coming from StatCast and from uh, PitchFX and these kind of things. And some of it, they've been pretty um, coy about releasing to the public and to providers like BaseballHQ.com. What do you hear about the likelihood that we're going to get access to some of the more granular data that is being generated by these advanced technical systems? It's. I've always heard that the intent is to give it out, but the timelines are fuzzy and the completeness is also sort of TBD. And to be fair to those guys, I don't think they're necessarily, you know, withholding information or just, uh, you know, holding it back for the sake of holding it back. I think one of the things that they're, my outsider impression is one of the things that they're dealing with is just the, you know, the, the sort of the same problem I was getting at with us consuming the data, but sort of on a more macro level is there's just so much of it and figuring out how to manage it and, how to how to collect it and how you might expose it to people is you know that's that's sort of a cutting edge kind of problem the amount of data they're collecting from you know so many cameras and so many ballparks so many games over the course of a season uh and how to uh you know expose what what they want to do with it themselves obviously their top priority is to expose it to the teams and use it within the game and then you know I, I think I think their hearts are in the right place as far as letting it get out, but sort of understandably, that's just sort of a you know as this thing still in its infancy is just sort of a lesser priority. So, from my perspective, I'm willing to be patient, but at the same token, uh, you know, I very much look forward to the day because I, I certainly think the the next leaps forward and how we look at the game and how we look at individual performances are going to going to come from that data stream when it's when it's available. Well said, Ray. I, I agree entirely with you. I'm looking forward to it as well. You can start finding it now at sites like Brooks Brothers and Baseball Savant, but the interfaces are a little hard to use, and there's it's quite difficult to get uh, league-wide data all at once. You, you, you have to go through player by player, and it, you, you can't get the big trend numbers in a way that at least that I find uh, easy to manipulate, so I'm looking forward to that as well. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com and speculator columnist. And Ray, as you know, during the season here at the podcast, we ask our guest experts to talk about their studs and duds for the balance of the year. No real rationale. Basically, a guy you'd like to have on your roster counts as a stud, a guy you'd probably not could be a dud. Uh, any rationale you like, as I say. But let's start with the hitters in the American League. Who's a stud hitter, a guy you really like for the balance of the season? Uh, the recent pickup of mine that you actually mentioned earlier, I'm pretty bullish on Logan Morrison in Tampa. He's you know, really surged over the last six or eight weeks. They've given him the first base job, and he's run with it. Uh, and my sense from what's going on down there is that, you know, inevitably he's probably not going to stay as hot as he is, but he's probably earned enough of the job and enough of a look there that they're going to leave him alone and let him sort of ride out the peaks and valleys for the for, for the rest of the season. Morrison's a guy I've liked for a long time now, and it seems like he never quite found the right role and the right fit, the right situation. So I think there's a decent chance that this is that situation, and we might see the Logan Morrison uh, upside that we've been sort of wondering for three or four years now if we would ever see it. I'm in exactly the same boat. I've been a Logan Morrison owner for in numerous leagues over the last few years, and he never quite seems to get there. I have him again this year in uh, AL Tout, and I'm hanging on. I hung on all along during the slow start because I just think you're, that he's in the right place, as you said. Who's a stud hitter in the National League that you like? Uh, we talked about Justin Upton. One of the guys I like in the NL is uh, his brother Melvin, who's 
having a resurgent year in San Diego. I took a uh, one of our deep dive fat fluke spotlight looks at him uh, four or six weeks ago now. And, you know, that was sort of a preliminary conclusion because it was, you know, in mid-May and the sample sizes were a little flaky. But I was optimistic about what I saw then. And the biggest question was going to be whether he could continue it. And he really has. So, I think, you know, for all the baggage that comes with Upton from his, you know, the flop of the Braves days and even last year in San Diego, uh, it really seems like the Tampa Melvin Upton is back now. Uh, And there's, you know, he's hitting for a respectable batting average. The power and speed are there. The contact is good enough to allow those power and speed numbers to continue. And I, I really think that what we're seeing is sustainable for the balance of the year. And moving back to the American League, who's a hitter, who's a dud, a guy that you know might be look attractive, but you don't want any part of him. I don't know how attractive he looks anymore, and believe it or not, it gives me no pleasure to say this, but you know, it looks to me like Alex Rodriguez might be done. Uh, you know, we were all sort of you know surprised. His owners were pleasantly surprised by the production that he offered last year and coming back from his you know year plus suspension and all of that but as good as he looked last year it just doesn't look like there's any life in the bat at all this year and when you look at someone with his age and his injury history and his chemistry history you know it's hard to project another bounce at this point for him you know he's obviously you know an upper 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 crust player and it's always hard to write those guys off uh, because of what he's done over the balance of his career and obviously the talent that he has. But you just wonder if this he's finally reached the point where his body just doesn't cooperate anymore. And in the National League, who's a, a hitter that qualifies as a dud for you? Uh, I'm going to stand by this one. Uh, about a month or so ago, I traded away Matt Kemp in uh, Tout Wars, uh, and the deal didn't really work out. And then I got Rich Hill right before he went on the DL. Uh, but I'm still pretty comfortable with my decision to trade Matt Kemp uh, just the lack of plate discipline there, which has gotten admittedly a little bit better in the month or so since I traded him. But, you know, he really just seems like, I don't know if it's the ballpark down there that has, you know, sort of created some bad habits or getting him trying to jack everything out. But, you know, he's providing some power, but the batting average just isn't there. The OBP, if you care about that, is just abysmal. And, you know, that lineup just doesn't have any Real, any real bright spots at all other than Upton, who we just talked about. So uh, even though I'm you know, going to criticize the lineup and say I like, I, I like Upton, I don't like Kemp. Ray Murphy's American League stud hitters Logan Morrison of Tampa, his National League stud Melvin Upton of the Padres, his American League dud A-Rod with the Yankees, and his National League dud hitter is Matt Kemp of San Diego. Let's move over to the mound now, Ray. In the American League, who's a stud pitcher you like for the balance of the year? This one's admittedly a little bit of speculation rather than hard numbers, but uh, I'm going to go with Jordano Ventura. Uh, Obviously, he's been in the news a lot lately. He was sort of terrible for... The first couple months of the season, culminating in that uh, headhunting incident with Manny Machado in Baltimore, but kind of quietly right after the that headhunting incident, he turned around and had two really good starts. Then he went and had a service suspension for a week and a half and came back this week in his first outing against the Cardinals, who are a very tough foe. Uh, they lit him up pretty good, but I think he might have been just been a little too amped after the suspension. And the Cardinals, like I said, are a you know, tough opponent. Uh, it looked to me like in those two starts before the suspension that Ventura you know, was kind of back, getting back to the mode he was in in the second half last year when he was very good. And I think we might actually see another second half run from him this year. I saw those two starts as well, 13 and a third innings. I think he only gave up a single earned run, struck out 15 guys and walked one. He looked like 
no, I was going to say the Ordano Ventura of old, but he was actually better than that. He looked like a, a near ace quality starter. Uh, the first start after, not so good uh, after the suspension, as you say. Uh, how about a National League pitcher who's a stud for you? I've been really impressed with Jonathan Gray. Uh, my co-general manager, Brent Hershey, took a deep dive on him a few weeks ago and did some video and looked at his numbers and all and sort of found a lot to like. He kind of went through a little bit of a blip after that. It's been reported to be a, a dead arm period or something like that where he got lit up two or three starts in a row. But he came back this week and threw a, uh, a really strong start in Coors Field. And I, I really think this is the emergence of the first really fantasy-relevant starting pitcher in Coors Field that we've seen since, what, Ubaldo Jimenez? Uh, he throws really hard. He throws... You know, he's got great command, and he's also, you know, one of the things that Brent mentioned that I, I also observed is he seems to have sort of two different approaches. He seems to work more toward getting ground balls when he's pitching in Coors Field and work and chases strikeouts more when he's on the road, and that he's, he seems like he's sort of a savvy enough guy to have figured out how to use his plus stuff to survive in thin air in a different way than he does in other ballparks. And if he does that, and that really proves to be a skill over the longer term, then he really gets exciting as a fantasy asset if he can not just be a guy who you use on the road confidently, but a guy who you can actually pitch in Coors Field. It's funny you should say that, Ray. I was looking at a daily fantasy card a little while back, and one of the names on it was Jonathan Gray pitching in Colorado. And normally my first step in figuring out what pitcher I want to use in a DFS contest is whoever's pitching in Colorado, I don't want them. But then I thought Jonathan Gray seems to be managing all right in Colorado, and that not only helps you decide whether or not to use him, but in a lot of tournament play especially, you're always looking for the guy who nobody else wants who still might be able to do a good job. And Jonathan Gray fits that bill because nobody likes Colorado pitchers. Uh, Let's move over to the American League. Who's your dud pitcher over in the American League this year? It's an interesting story about Tim Lincecum. This is hardly an out-on-the-limb projection, but um, he's, you know, obviously a lot of people were interested in seeing him in his first start with the Angels. And I've sort of saw enough right away when I saw his velocity was just in the upper 80s. I'm like, I, do, I know enough about Tim Lincecum to know he can't survive and be effective at that price point. Sort of the larger point about that, though, is I am impressed across the industry and across all the leagues I play in. I think, I think it kind of speaks to how savvy everybody has become in that he got, in the leagues I'm in at least, he got very little interest as a pickup. I mean, somebody picked him up in every league, I think, but, you know, always on the cheap. Nobody got excited and threw a big chunk of their fab at him or anything like that. And let's not forget that this is a former multi-time, multi-time Cy Young Award winner who really isn't that old. You know, in another, in another universe that, you know, 10 years ago, everybody would have been following all over themselves to get this guy and I think it's really just a statement about how sharp the community at large has gotten that everyone looked at Tim Lincecum and kind of said yeah I don't think so and I think that's definitely the right call Ray Lincecum was notorious or famous I guess depending on your point of view for a highly unorthodox pitching delivery that his dad had coached him over the years and I wonder now in retrospect if people are going to look at the at that weird looking delivery and say this was the cause of him flaming out at this stage of his career seems like a fairly easy conclusion to draw now you know to put a slightly different spin on it I think the key to that delivery was always that he was remarkably flexible and uh, you know as 
gentlemen of a certain age, Patrick, I think we both know that you know that goes away over time, right? And that, that maybe that's all that Lincecum is is running into. I mean, maybe the delivery was especially fluid for a guy in his mid twenties who's a world class athlete. But you know, even athletes at that tier, you know, start to have different. Uh, different strength, different muscle mass, different flexibility as they move into their, you know, even into their late 20s and 30s. And maybe that's all Lincecum ran into. On the other hand, maybe the fact is that Lincecum was just so good and so gifted that you could have done anything you wanted to with, with his delivery. And at his peak, he was going to be that good. And it's not that the delivery made him good, but that like he had so much God-given ability that, you know, you could do anything within reason to his delivery and it wasn't going to screw him up. I, you know, we may never know. It's it, it's a great theoretical question, though. I'd love to hear, to circle back, I'd love to hear five different opinions on that at First Pitch Arizona. I always think of Tim Linscombe Ray as being like a 27, 28-year-old pitcher, but in fact, he's 32 years old, and we know that any pitcher is going to start into a decline phase in his early 30s, so maybe uh, all the talk about his mechanics and all the talk about his workloads and things like that, maybe this is just a simple, straightforward case of a guy who pitched a lot and is starting to wind down. Yeah, it could be. I mean, 32 is not out of the realm for someone to get old and you know, he carried a lot of workload in those years, a couple of deep postseason runs. You know, in his 20s, I don't think he you know, went on the DL when he was at his peak in those Cy Young years. I mean, there was a lot of a lot of innings he threw in his mid-20s, and maybe this is, you know, maybe the delivery is a red herring, and maybe this is just a guy who, you know, burned bright and burned out fast. It's not the first time we've seen that. I was looking at uh, Linscombe's record. You were right, to age 24 through 27, well over 200 innings. Then again, uh, the couple of years after that, right around 200 innings, a little bit short. And on top of all that, Ray, this is a lot of innings for anybody to pile up. But in addition, Tim Lincecum's a relatively slight pitcher. Yeah, exactly. Different people, different pitchers with different builds. You know, not everyone can, you know, carry the load of uh, Nolan Ryan or Roger Clemens. And, you know, especially when you, you know, as you say, Lincecum is, you know, not built like that at all. And, you know, the, the, the you know, there are other slider pitchers who we've seen, you know, my, my, my local example, of course, is Pedro Martinez, who I don't think ever really carried those, you know, 200 plus inning workloads that Winsicum did. But, you know, we saw the, you know, the wear and tear that comes along with a, you know, a guy who's that slight and relies more on, you know, torque and whipping action and that sort of thing that generate velocity than just, you know, straight muscle mass like a Clemens or Orion, you know. And finally, in the National League, who's a dud pitcher for you? Uh, this one pains me a little bit because he's been sort of core of my NFBC run that we were talking about earlier, but I am concerned about Jason Hamill. I felt all along while I've enjoyed his run on of you know, good pitching on a very good Cubs team that's led to you know, copious amounts of wins and you know, good peripheral numbers, you know, I, I think over the longer term we even though he's been very good for the first half, I think we know who Jason Hamill is, and I think we know he's not this good. So as I plan for my second half in the NFBC, one of the things I'm doing is reminding myself that I can't just pencil in another eight wins and mid-two ZRA or whatever it is today from Jason Hamill that you know I've probably extracted more than 50% of the value I'm going to get from him at the at this point in the season. Ray Murphy's pitchers, his American League stud, Jordano Ventura of Kansas City, in the National League, his stud, Jonathan Gray of Colorado, his duds in the American League, Tim Lincecum of the Angels, and Jason Hamill of the Cubs in the National League. Ray, this has been a treat, as it always is. Tell us where listeners can follow Ray Murphy. Uh, you can find me in the general manager's office column at Baseball HQ and periodically over in the speculator section as well. 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RayHQ, and you can find me virtually 24-7 in the Baseball HQ subscriber forums. Ray, thanks a million for doing this. It was a pleasure. I hope we get to talk to you again during the season and, of course, in November in Phoenix at First Pitch Absolutely. Arizona. Absolutely. I could do another hour, Patrick, and if it has to be in Arizona, so be it. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager and speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. We have our Baseball HQ radio commentaries coming up, but first, let me tell you a little more about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with great content across a wide range of useful information. This week, our Facts and Flukes Performance Validation looks at Mets outfielder Joanna Cespedes, Miami pitcher Jose Fernandez, former St. Louis closer Trevor Rosenthal, and a whole lot more. Playing Time Tomorrow roster analysis covers the American League West, the National League West, and the American League Central on a rotating basis that takes in all six divisions of the majors on a regular basis. And in the Market Pulse column, analyst Matt Cederholm looks at some upside picks in non-mixed leagues. During the season, BaseballHQ.com has daily matchup reports, a daily fantasy dashboard, team coverage, and minor league scouting. And of course, all the projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your competition. And it's all only at the website with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it is time for those regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have the playing time comment, frequent flyers, our weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Cubs second base prospect Ian Happ is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The Chicago Cubs have done a remarkable job of stockpiling some of the best young talent in the game. Not only do they have one of the youngest everyday lineups, but they have more help on the way. One player who might be ready sooner than anticipated is second base prospect Ian Happ. Happ was the Cubs' first overall pick in 2015 after a standout career at the University of Cincinnati. The switch hitting Happ has a good approach at the plate and uses a short, compact stroke to make consistent contact with above average power. He moves well on defense with a solid arm and good range, but with Ben Zobrist under contract for three more years, Happ will likely have to move off second base in order to secure full time at bats down the road. On the year, the 21-year-old Happ is hitting 319 with a 427 on on-base percentage and a 518 slugging percentage. He has 18 doubles, 9 home runs, and 11 stolen bases. Happ has also drawn 51 walks and has the potential to be a 300 hitter with double-digit home runs and a 400 on on-base percentage. Happ's owners will have to be patient, but for those who can wait, he has excellent fantasy value over the long term. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage includes ongoing daily call-ups with prospects like Los Angeles right-hander Brock Stewart, Washington super prospect Lucas Giolito, Atlanta right-hander Mauricio Cabrera, Houston's top prospect A.J. Reed. We talked about him in the show and many others. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing those at-bats or innings. 
In this week's edition, we'll look at the minor league effects of John Jay's injury, as well as the odds of a call-up of Alex Bregman in Houston. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. In San Diego, John Jay hit the DL with a fractured forearm, and he's expected to be out through mid-August at least. Jay served as the Padres' starting center fielder, and he'll mainly be backfilled by Travis Jankowski for the time being. Jankowski has great wheels as he swiped 10 bags through just 82 at-bats this season, but his 244 batting average is reflective of a poor contact rate that sat at 73% last season and is in the mid-60s this year. Should Jankowski have trouble getting on base, the club may look to the farm as it dives from contention. Manny Margot is one of their top hitting prospects, and he appears ready for the major league level. Margot's hitting 295 with 22 steals and just over 300 at bats as El Paso's main center fielder, and he'd be a logical fill in should San Diego deem him ready this summer. Margot's plate discipline may be enough for him to use his wheels and be a solid speed threat down the stretch. The club may also look at Hunter Renfro, who's crushed 18 home runs with a 9.42 OPS in AAA. Renfro was our top prospect in San Diego's system entering 2016, and while he's not a center fielder, the club could opt to move Melvin Upton Jr. to center field in order to make room for Renfro in the corner. Either way, deep league speculators will want to look at Renfro and Margo in the second half, depending on team needs. For power, Renfro's the way to go, while Margo could give a nice stolen base boost later this summer. To the AL, we go to a Houston team that made prospect watchers happy last week when they called up A.J. Reed at first base. And they're probably not done, as Alex Bregman was promoted from AA to AAA to fill Reed's vacated roster spot. Third base has been somewhat of a liability in Houston this season. And while Bregman profiles as a shortstop long term, he's blocked by Carlos Correa there for quite a few more years. Bregman's been getting reps at third base lately in the minors, and this is where he'll play if and when he's called up to Houston. Bregman made the top 30 in our HQ100 entering 2016 with an impressive 8B prospect rating as Houston's top overall prospect. His performance at AA this season has only boosted that overall outlook. Bregman's hitting 297 with a 415 on base and 14 home runs through 236 at-bats, and his plate skills have been phenomenal with 42 walks to just 22 strikeouts. With Houston now surging into the playoff race after a rough April, they'll be looking for more production at the hot corner. If Bregman can prove himself there defensively, we'll likely see him in July, and as a college bat, he has the tools and polish to make an immediate impact in the second half. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is the director of social media and an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for our Frequent Flyers commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are Seattle catcher Mike Zanino, we talked about him earlier as well, and Minnesota starting pitcher Jose Barrios. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. As we turn the calendar to July, draft day may seem like a distant memory. Remember drafting D. Gordon or A.J. Pollock in the early rounds? What about Charlie Blackman, who stole 43 bases for the Rockies in 2015? But so far in 2016, six. Well, at least Charlie Blackman has 12 home runs as batting 305. That cushions a blow. 
The point is that we, as owners, often have a short or convenient memory when it comes to some players. In this week's edition of Frequent Flyers, we'll look at ways to leverage those convenient memories by profiling two players, a hitter and a pitcher, who may right now represent excellent by low opportunities. But first, let's test your memory. Do you remember which catcher tied both Buster Posey and Evan Gaddis with 22 home runs in 2014? The answer is Mike Zunino. The 25-year-old Seattle Mariners catcher was the third overall selection in the 2012 Amateur Players Draft. Remember that? Yet despite being drafted in 2012, Zunino logged 173 at-bats at the major league level in 2013. Think about that. Mike Zunino was drafted on June 4th, 2012 and debuted with the Mariners on June 13th, 2013. Was he rushed? Let's see. In 961 Major League at-bats, Mike Zunino has a career batting average of 193. Yet Zunino is projected by BaseballHQ.com to have a linear-weighted power index in 2016, equal to Cubs catcher Wilson Contreras at 113, and higher than Buster Posey's projection of 97 for 2016. However, it's important to remember that Mike Zunino, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Nevertheless, Mike Zunino has cut down his strikeout rate at AAA this season, leading to an improved batting average. Zunino is currently batting 282 with 10 home runs in the hitter-friendly Pacific Coast League. How does that compare to a prospect like, say, Astros first baseman A.J. Reed? Both play in the Pacific Coast League, and Zunino is batting 282 while Reed is batting only 266. A.J. Reed has 11 home runs, Mike Zunino has 10, and Wilson Contreras has 9. Now are you ready to buy low on Zunino? What about buying low on Minnesota's Jose Barrios? At the beginning of the 2016 season, Jose Barrios seemed like a can't-miss pitching prospect. We ranked him number 8 on our Top 75 Impact Prospects list for 2016, ahead of players like Blake Snell, Nomar Mazzara, Tim Anderson, and even newly promoted Houston Astros first baseman A.J. Reed, whom we just discussed. However, his Major League debut against Cleveland on April 27, 2016, Jose Barrios allowed five earned runs in only four innings. Maybe it was just nerves. After all, it was his first Major League start. Even Twins manager Paul Molitor said that Jose was obviously a little bit amped up. We didn't even see him at his best. He competed fairly well, but his command wasn't particularly sharp. His command wasn't particularly sharp at his next start on May 2nd against Houston either. Jose Barrios walked five batters in five and one-third innings while, once again, allowing five earned runs. In fact, through his first four major league starts with the Twins this season, Jose Barrios allowed a total of 17 earned runs in 15 innings pitched, including what must have been the tipping point for Minnesota when Barrios surrendered seven earned runs while only getting two outs in the first inning against Detroit on May 16th. The next day, May 17th, Jose Barrios was optioned to AAA Rochester, where, in eight starts since his demotion, Barrios has produced a 5-3 record with a 3.18 ERA and a dominance rate, or strikeouts per nine rate, of 9.4 strikeouts per nine, where we consider seven strikeouts per nine or higher to be elite. Great numbers, but it's his last two starts that should grab your attention, where Jose Barrios looked unhittable, even taking a no-hitter into the 7th on June 28th, after only allowing three hits and eight scoreless innings as previous start on June 23rd. 
with Minnesota's starting rotation currently having a league-worst 558 ERA through 78 games, the Twins are likely to make a roster move pretty soon. And you should too, to grab Mike Zunino and Jose Barrios, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. Pitchers rated 1.0 or higher are strong bets to start. Those under minus 1.0 are strong bets to stay sitting. In between, you'll have to gauge that based on your own risk tolerance and league context. Here with a look at four weekend matchups, including Sunday matchups featuring Cleveland ace right-hander Corey Kluber at Toronto against Toronto righty Jay Happ, and a National League game with breakout star right-hander Jonathan Gray of Colorado in Dodger Stadium against rookie star righty Julio Urias. Here's baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst Greg Fishwick. We have two milestones to celebrate this weekend, the 240th birthday of the United States and the halfway point of the 2016 Major League Baseball season. By the time we see 4th of July fireworks, every team will have played at least 81 games. For Saturday, we'll look at an interleague matchup and a National League matchup. And for Sunday, it'll be an American League matchup and a National League matchup. Where better to begin our 4th of July weekend than the city in which the United States Declaration of Independence was signed, Philadelphia. The Kansas City Royals' visit to the Phillies' hitter-friendly Citizens Bank Park makes this our interleague matchup. Kansas City has the third-worst road record in the majors at 14-25, and and versus teams below 500, the Royals are just 12-10. and Philadelphia is only a couple of games better at home than Kansas City is on the road, has the fourth-worst run differential in Major League Baseball, and has the majors' worst records over its past 20 and 30 games. Despite their road woes, the Royals are the superior team. Kansas City starter Danny Duffy is one of only two pitchers with matchup ratings in the recommended start range this weekend, and he has the higher matchup rating of the two at 136. The Phils counter with the suddenly struggling Aaron Nola, who has a risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of minus 017. Danny Duffy will be making his 10th start since rejoining the Royals' rotation May 15. In his past five outings, Duffy has three PQS dominant starts and one PQS disaster. Overall, Duffy's average PQS score is three. The key to his improvement has been his career-best success against right-handed batters, including an opponent's on-base percentage against them below 300 for the first time, a career-high strikeout rate of 25%, a career-low walk rate of 6%, and a career-high strikeout-to-walk ratio of 4-5, more than twice his previous best. Duffy's strand rate of 79% has not artificially lowered his ERA of 324, as his expected ERA is 336. Over 67 innings, he has a strikeout-to-walk ratio of 79 to 16. Duffy's first pitch strike rate is 64%, and his swinging strike rate is 16%. He has a whip of 108 and a base performance value of 144. His recommended start matchup rating is a reality for your fantasy team. When we last looked at Aaron Nola on June 10, he was flying high. In his four starts since then, he's had two PQS disasters and an average PQS score of 1.5. Nola only throws 90 miles per hour, and there's been no noticeable change in his velocity, but both his first pitch strike rate and swinging strike rate have seriously declined from April to June. 
Nola's first pitch strike rate fell from an above-average 67% to a below-average 58%, and his swinging strike rate fell from an above-average 12% to a well-below-average 7%. That's reflected in his control rate, which has gone from a fine 1.6 walks per nine to an astronomical for him 4.3. But even that doesn't explain Nola's whip going all the way from 088 to 258. What might? How about a hit rate of 55%? Nova's base performance value pattern of 162 in April, 157 in May, and 117 in June for an overall 151 offers some reassurance, but also confirms his risk-reward wildcard matchup rating. He may not get a win this weekend, but his luck should improve enough to be worth a start against the free-swinging Kansas City club without its designated hitter in a National League park. Our Saturday matchup from the National League takes place in St. Louis's pitcher-friendly Busch Stadium, where the Cardinals are an astonishing seven games under 500. The Milwaukee Brewers are the visitors. The Cards have the Majors' fourth-ranked run differential of one run per game, and they feast on teams under 500, going 28 and 16 to rank fourth. Milwaukee allows nearly two-thirds of a run more per game than it scores for a run differential that ranks 21st. On the road. The Brewers have lost 10 more than they've won and ranked 27th. Against right-handers, they've lost 11 more than they've won and ranked 24th. And Milwaukee has lost 2 more than it's won over its past 10, 20, and 30 games. The Cardinals are the clear favorites, and that's reflected in the matchup ratings, where Adam Wainwright has a risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of 097 for the Cards, and Jimmy Nelson has a recommended sit matchup rating of minus 111 for the Brew Crew. The 27-year-old Nelson was a breakout target for many fantasy owners this year, and he started the season strongly. But in a facts and flukes column on June 2, BaseballHQ.com's Greg Pyron noted Nelson was, quote, still plagued by shoddy control, and luck with a hit rate and strand rate has played a major role in the shiny ERA, unquote. Pyron concluded that, quote, most of his skills are actually worse than they were in 2015, unquote. Sure enough, Four of his next five starts have been PQS disasters for Nelson, and his average PQS score in those five outings has been one. In 95 innings pitched, Nelson has walked 42 for a whip of 135, fed by a first pitch strike rate of only 57%. Nelson's expected ERA is 449, and his BPV is 37. Heed his matchup rating recommendation and sit him if you can. After beginning the year with four straight PQS disasters and six in his first ten starts, Adam Wainwright had four PQS-dominant efforts in his next six outings, which also included two PQS threes. Wainwright's month-to-month pattern is the mirror image opposite of Nola's, with expected ERAs of 554, 410, and 321, whips of 170, 130, and 114. Dominance rates of 4.6 strikeouts per nine innings pitched, 6.3, and 9.1, and base performance values of 4, 94, and 118. He may not be the ace he once was, but he should do well enough to help you in this matchup. On Sunday in the American League, the home team Blue Jays host the still-surging Cleveland Indians in Toronto's hitter-friendly Rogers Center. The Jays are two games over 500 at home, but the Tribe is six games over 500 on the road. Cleveland has won a dozen games in a row, its longest streak in 65 years. The Indians score over a run more than they allow per game to rank second in run differential, and Toronto scores a half a run more than it allows to rank ninth. It'll be tough for Toronto to stop Cleveland, especially with the Indians' Corey Kluber bringing in a risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of 093 to face the Jays' J.A. Happ and his risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of minus 038. 
Four of Corey Kluber's past five and six of his past eight outings have been PQS dominant, and he has two complete games in his past four starts. Over 111 innings pitched, Kluber has 110 strikeouts and 23 walks for a control rate of 1.9 walks per nine innings pitched, a dominance rate of 8.9 strikeouts per nine innings pitched, and a command ratio of 4.8 strikeouts per walk. Kluber's ground ball rate is 50%, his expected ERA is 315, his whip is 098, and his BPV is 139. In short, Corey Kluber is an ace on a hot team and should be started. J.A. Happ has 10 wins, and if that's all you need, you may want to start him. But beware, Happ's PQS log for his past 10 starts shows three PQS disasters to counter his three PQS dominant starts. In 12 innings pitched during those three disasters, he gave up 19 earned runs. In 100 innings pitched overall, Happ has a control rate of 2.8 walks per nine on a first pitch strike rate of 57%, and a dominance rate of 6.9 strikeouts per nine on a swinging strike rate of 9%, for a command ratio of 2.2 strikeouts per walk. Hap's expected ERA is 435 and his BPV is 58. With an average PQS score of only 2 at home, there's just too much risk to start Hap. Our Sunday National League game features two of the best young starting pitchers in Major League Baseball at pitcher-friendly Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. The visiting Colorado Rockies bring in their prized rookie right-hander, Jonathan Gray, with a risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of minus 043. He'll face the Dodgers' 19-year-old left-hander, Julio Arias, who has the other matchup rating in the recommended start range at 125. Colorado is the epitome of a break-even team. The Rocks score about the same number of runs per game as they allow, and they are around 500 on the road, overall, against teams at or above 500, and over their past 20 and 30 games. The Los Angelinos score a half a run more than they allow per game, and are about eight games over 500 at home, overall, and against teams under 500. The Dodgers are six games over 500 in their past 30 games and four games over 500 in their past 20 and 10 games. LA is five games ahead of Colorado in the National League West and the Dodgers should outclass their division rivals in this one. Ignored by most fantasy owners over his nine unimpressive starts for Colorado as a 23-year-old last season, Jonathan Gray is breaking the mold for Rocky starting pitchers. Just 10 days ago, BaseballHQ.com pitching analyst Stephen Nickran wrote that, quote, with top-tier punch-out potential and a ground ball tilt, Gray is a budding ace who won't come cheap in drafts next season, unquote. Gray does have a feast or famine PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 46% dominant to 38% disaster, but surprisingly, three of his five disasters have been on the road, and three of his six dominant starts have been at home. Overall, Gray's expected ERA is 3.23, his whip is 118, and his BPV is 128. In 76 innings pitched, he has 83 strikeouts and 24 walks for a control rate of 2.8 walks per nine, a dominance rate of 9.8 strikeouts per nine, and a command ratio of 3.5 strikeouts per walk. With the Dodgers limiting Arias's innings, the Rockies may have a chance against LA's weak bullpen bridge to Jansen. So if you're taking chances, taking a risk on Jonathan Gray may reap some rewards. Julio Urias, whose Twitter handle is at the teenager 7, with the 7 being his uniform number, is averaging four and two-thirds innings pitched per start. I just mentioned LA's weak bridge to closer Kenley Jansen, so if you're searching for wins, you may have to look elsewhere. Despite a credible whip of 108 in 263 minor league innings pitched, 
and a control rate of 1.8 walks per nine innings pitched over seven AAA starts this season. In 33 major league innings pitched, Arias has 15 walks for a control rate of 4.1 walks per nine innings pitched. Combined with a hit rate of 36%, that's pushed his whip up to 145. But he's also struck out 41 for a dominance rate of 11.2 strikeouts per nine and a command ratio of 2.7 strikeouts per walk on a first pitch strike rate of 63%. He's already had a four-inning PQS-4 against Colorado in Dodger Stadium, which he followed with four straight PQS-3s. After PQS Disaster 1s in his first two efforts, Urias has not allowed more than two earned runs in any of his past five efforts. His expected ERA is a respectable 368, and he's put up a BPV of 110. But he may be in line for a reduced workload, as Dodgers manager Dave Roberts has said Urias will get two more starts before Brandon McCarthy and Hunjin Ru are scheduled to return from the DL, quote, and we'll see from there, unquote. It may pay to take advantage of Urias' recommended start matchup rating while you can. So for our 4th of July weekend, we looked at two pitchers with matchup ratings in the recommended start range, five in the risk-reward wildcard range, and one in the recommended sit range. We confirmed the recommended starts for Danny Duffy and Julio Arias and the recommended sit for Jimmy Nelson. We gave the edge to rewards over risk for Aaron Nola, Adam Wainwright, Corey Kluber, and Jonathan Gray. And we saw too many risks to try for any rewards from J.A. Happ. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst who has his weekend pitcher matchups comment here at the Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. This week I want to talk about a Thor elbow and the spurs of the moment. If your league mate offered you Met starter Noah Syndergaard in a trade, would you buy a used ball player from that man? Your first inclination would probably be to say yes. Syndergaard is clearly a fantasy stud, great stats, a cool nickname, and at 23 years old, a bright future. Or maybe not. I don't know any more than anyone what Syndergaard's future holds, but I can tell you this. If I got a Syndergaard offer in my league, I wouldn't give up a heavy package in return. The issue, of course, is Syndergaard's now cloudy injury risk profile. Syndergaard opened the year with four straight PQS dominant starts and great fantasy stats. Since that awesome opening, though, Syndergaard has sunk steadily. His PQS average has dropped a full point, and while his ERA whip and dominance ratios are still good, they're not great anymore, and they're trending the wrong way. On June 22nd, Syndergaard bottomed out with a PQS 1 against the Royals. Three runs in six innings, eight hits, and just four strikeouts. Manager Terry Collins pulled Syndergaard from the game after just 91 pitches and said Syndergaard's elbow, and I quote, flared up on him. Flaring up is a euphemism, like a guy trying to sell you a used 2010 Dodge Caravan, lightly commenting about the wheel bearings, and I quote, rattling a bit. The team sent Syndergaard for an MRI, which showed no structural damage, and he was prescribed anti-inflammatory medication. Syndergaard told reporters, and I quote, It was just a little thing, just a little something that flared up. There's that term again, flared up. And don't worry if you hear those brakes squealing a little. Will that be cash or check? True to his own self-assessment, Syndergaard went back to the mound on his regular five-day schedule. And he was awful. He lasted just three innings, long enough to surrender seven hits, three walks, and five runs to the then-struggling Washington Nationals. 
Right after the game, Mets beat writers started reporting that Syndergaard was dealing with bone spurs in his right elbow. This is where things got a little weird. Syndergaard again spoke with the media, and when he was asked if he had bone spurs, he said, and I quote, I do not. My arm feels great. It's amazing what a little anti-inflammatories can do. This should remind anyone who has read Ball 4 of Steve Barber, the Seattle Pilots pitcher who kept insisting his arm was okay, even though it was basically hanging from his shoulder by a single shred of skin. Asked again about the bone spurs, Syndergaard again denied it, saying, and I quote, No, there's nothing structurally wrong with my elbow at all. This might be a bit of misdirection. Medically speaking, bone spurs are probably not a structural problem per se, just like it's not a structural problem if you see metal shavings under a brake rotor, because at that very moment the brake will probably still help stop the car. But while it's not a structural problem, it's still a problem, because it is a strong indication that something in the mechanism is not working properly. A review of medical and orthopedic websites strongly suggests connections between elbow bone spurs, which are already problematic, and ligament issues that could be much worse. In honor of the late great hockey star Gordie Howe, let's throw a little elbow in here. The elbow joint has the humerus, the bone of the upper arm, cupping into the olecranon, like a bat balanced in the palm of your hand. The olecranon is at the top end of the ulna, which is the big bone of the forearm on the pinky finger side. The other forearm bone on the thumb side is called the radius. I'm also pretty sure that the arm bone connected to the neck bone, but don't quote me. The elbow would be a terribly weak and unstable joint if it weren't for three ligaments, including the infamous ulnar collateral ligament, which is what gets replaced in Tommy John surgery. The three ligaments hold all the parts of the joint tightly together, like duct taping that balanced bat onto your hand. But the strength and stability of the joint assume normal use and intense overhand throwing, like 100 mile an hour fastballs, is not normal use. It puts the elbow ligaments under tremendous strain. Now these ligaments are as tough as the lunch special steak in a roadside diner, so they don't tear easily, but they do stretch, and when they stretch, the joint gets loose. And as moms told their daughters back in the 50s, a loose joint can get you into trouble. In an article titled Elbow Injuries in the Throwing Athlete, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons describes what happens once the ligaments stretch. And I quote, The olecranon and humerus bones are twisted and forced against each other. End quote. It's like the olecranon is the mortar and the humerus is a pestle. As a result of this grinding, and I quote, The protective cartilage on the olecranon is worn away and abnormal overgrowth of bone, called bone spurs or osteophytes, develops. Close quote. These bone spurs can really hurt, even if the person with them refuses to admit they're there. Furthermore, while the spurs don't usually cause ligament damage directly, they do indicate that mechanical issues and genetic predisposition have at least caused the ligaments to stretch, which increases the risk of a tear of the ulnar collateral ligament. Orthopedic surgeon Dr. David Lintner said in an article at throwinginjuries.com, and I quote, if a pitcher has bone spurs in the elbow, the UCL must be evaluated. If the problem is stemming from the UCL, the ligament must be reconstructed and the spurs removed. If a pitcher has bone spurs in the elbow, this is sometimes a warning sign that problems with the UCL may be coming. With this sobering warning ringing in our ears, let's review Syndergaard's past elbow and forearm problems. In 2014 in AAA, he was diagnosed with a flexor pronator strain in his right forearm and spent time on the DL. Forearm flexor strains often precede the UCL injuries that lead to Tommy John. 
In 2015, Syndergaard again had problems with what was called forearm tightness in spring training, and he missed his first four starts in AAA. That May, after a five-inning, four-run start, doctors again examined Syndergaard's pitching elbow, including an MRI which showed no ligament damage. Then came this year, and more bad news about Syndergaard's Thor elbow. Flexor strain, forearm tightness, bone spurs. Taken separately, each of these is a red flag indicating the possibility of future ligament issues. Well, take them all together, yes, it might not mean anything. But if you're in a Syndergaard deal, or thinking of one, it's something you have to include in your calculations. The article by the Academy of Orthopedic Surgeon ends ominously with three categories of pitchers it says are at higher risk of injury. First, taller and heavier pitchers. Syndergaard is 6'6", 240, among the tallest, heaviest pitchers in the major leagues. Second, pitchers who throw with higher velocity. Syndergaard is also one of the hardest throwers in the game. And third, pitchers who throw with arm pain, or while fatigued, have the highest rate of injury. It appears Syndergaard might already be doing this, being a good soldier, downplaying his elbow pain, and making all his starts. Even beyond these issues, Syndergaard has always been a heavy sinker-slider pitcher, and those two pitches, along with a cut fastball, have been implicated in increased risk of elbow injury. So what are the fantasy implications? Of course, every roster decision in fantasy baseball is a balance of risk and reward. That includes what to do in managing Syndergaard's obvious injury risk. Essentially, you have to lay out the likelihoods of various outcomes and then price them into the results you would want to get in a Syndergaard deal. In the short run, Syndergaard may be okay managing his elbow soreness with those anti-inflammatory drugs, physio, and rest. He might not have any unusual soreness or any other difficulties, and he could pitch well through the rest of this season, through a couple of seasons, or for the rest of his career. We really don't quite know. For this season, he would be a pitcher with solid value in the mid-20s, and an upside of $30 or more if he could get back to his early season form and keep getting wins, which is a whole other area of pitcher risk. If Syndergaard's soreness gets any worse, though, the Mets could try to forestall surgery by limiting his innings and or his pitch counts, especially if the team moves into a position comfortably into or out of the playoffs. That means shorter outings, skipped starts, and it all adds up to less fantasy production. Worse, the bone spur could continue to grow, causing more and more pain until Syndergaard simply has to recognize it and deal with it surgically. Typically, the surgery is arthroscopic, but even that would cost him significant time away from the mound if it were performed during the season. When Yankees starter Masahiro Tanaka had arthroscopic surgery to remove a bone spur from his elbow, his recovery started with six weeks of exercise and strengthening, followed by a throwing program. That was in the off-season, but if it was in-season, say seven weeks total, that's nine or ten starts lost, with a corresponding giant reduction in Syndergaard's fantasy value. Worse still, the bone spurs could be indicators, as I said, of coming ligament issues, even a tear and the dreaded Tommy John. As former relief pitcher Bill Bray found out, the bone spur itself can actually slice into the UCL, weakening it until it tears, and again leading to Tommy John. From a keeper perspective, the risks are even greater. A huge part of Syndergaard's fantasy value in keeper leagues is his youth, and the prospect of having an ace pitcher for two years, three years, or the rest of his career. 
But in a standard keeper league, if you get him this year in year one of a standard contract, you get two more cheap years. Depending on the timing, a Tommy John surgery would basically cost you those two years and devalue Syndergaard's future value to zero. It's a lot of risk, but that doesn't mean it's a deal you can't make. If you're, say, fourth in your league and you need a big push in the pitching categories, yeah, maybe it costs you some prospects, but it could still be a good idea. Might help you win your league. If you're leading your league already, or if the price includes a good value steady contributor, maybe it's something you want not to do. Whatever you decide, just make sure you listen carefully and pay attention to that grinding noise in the wheel bearings. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Masternotes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 1st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 31 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Canada Day edition of our show, co-general manager and speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com, Ray Murphy. He's a great guy, always has tons of interesting things to tell us about fantasy baseball. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon. Our playing time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our frequent flyers commentator was Alex Becky. And our pitcher matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in touch with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, or please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com. You'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. In our trivia question, we asked if you could identify the four Canadian baseball players who've won major individual awards. The three Canadian most valuable players, Larry Walker in 1997, Justin Morneau in 2006, and Joey Votto in 2010. And of course, Canada has celebrated one Cy Young winner, Ferguson Jenkins of the Chicago Cubs in 1971. Thanks again for listening. Have a happy Canada Day and a great 4th of July weekend. We'll be back again next Friday with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>